In this episode, we will be doing TFOS 1682 to 1695. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1682. Story number one. Animal Rights, written by Sinchi Dev. It was a terrible incident. Most probably a political shitstorm as soon as the human ambassador arrived and started to ask for the human was lost. Right in the Novrak territory, sure. It was in the outskirts and the culprits were probably pirates, but it was still inside their jurisdiction. The Novrak ambassador reviewed the live stream once again. The two battle-scarred Norhunda fighting to the death. These terrible giant creatures made the ground and with it as recording device quake whenever they hit each other. Their giant tusks pierced each other, staining the soil with their blood. One of them falls, its wounds too severe to keep going. The others roar, bleeding of victorious, and turns to the camera. Human voices can be heard, but the roar of the Norhunder covers their voices and the livestream ends. The Norvac ambassador couldn't contain the chills. Even as he read the report of the justice enforcement team for the tenth time, he felt sorry for the humans. What terrible fate those humans had to endure. Pirates kidnapping them, the live stream to broadcast their deaths, the pirates abandoning them as soon as the Norhunder appeared, and then being killed by the monster at the end. Of course, the pirates never appeared in the broadcast, and neither did the humans. But what other reason could it be for humans to be so close to a monster fight? The guard announces the arrival of the human ambassador. Ambassador Mariah from Terra Prime. The human ambassador was a thin, young female. She looked like the kind of person that cared deeply for others. Exactly the kind of person the Norvac ambassador was afraid of in the circumstance. She might even declare war on the basis that the loss of humans was unforgivable. Good cycle, Ambassador Nufa. It must be something very important to call me this urgently. Good cycle, Ambassador Mariah. Yes, uh, it is. Please sit down. Uh, let me show you. Ambassador Nufa handed her the device with the recording and tried to read what was going through her mind while seeing it. Shock, disgust, and anger. That's it. More with the humans it was. They had a good run. Humans were going to wipe the floor with the Novax, all because of some stupid pirates. I'm deeply sorry about this, Ambassador. How many laws did they break? Sorry for declaring what well, that's a first. As for how many laws the pirates broke, who knew? Hard to say, Ambassador. We can't even see them in the recording. I'd guess protected wildlife trade, blood sports, gambling. Sorry, um, say what? Animal rights. Animal rights. Like don't torture animals, treat your pet well, don't abandon your animals and such. I, 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 uh, I don't get it. Ambassador Mariah seems confused too, but continues. Don't worry, we will, uh, we'll find them. There it was, human optimism. Was she thinking that the humans from the recording were still alive? Ambassador Mariah, I have to give you this too. Ambassador Nufa handed her the report of the Justice Enforcement Team. She reads it. She reads it again. She seems... ashamed? Ambassador Nufa, is this what you think happened? Said Ambassador Mariah in a very soft voice. 
It is what we think happened, sorry, but I don't think you'll find them. Ambassador Mariah's face becomes as red as it could. Is this when the war is declared? Um, that is not what happened. They, uh, they're, they're not the victims here. They, they are the criminals. What? But if the humans are not the victims, who is the Norhunder? Those monsters? How could they be the victims? Um, did you see the scars in those animals? Yes. Surely from another battle. No. Those are human-made scars, um, probably whip marks. The humans there, uh, made them fight, uh, which is illegal by human laws. Ambassador Nufa wasn't sure what scared him the most. Humans enjoying making monsters fight. The fact that they could actually pull it off, or that they were so dangerous that they had laws in place to protect non-sapient creatures from humans. Don't worry, Ambassador Nufa. We'll find them, and they'll pay. This is no longer who we are as a race. Please accept our apologies, sir. We are deeply sorry that you found yourself involved in this. Eight cycles later, Ambassador Nufa received a communication from Ambassador Mariah, telling him that the culprits were found and asking for permission to judge them with human laws. The permission was granted with haste. Fifty-six cycles later, the humans passed on the Galactic Council nearest law projects for the protection of non-sapient creatures. While some joked about humans passing laws to not kill beings too hard, many others supported the projects. The non-sapient galactic laws are now one of the required laws for joining the Galactic Council. Most species they respect them out of the incapability to damage wild beings, others because they agree, and the most violent, well... It's a choice between being nice with the non-sapiens around you, or the humans stop being nice with you. End of story. Story number two. Broken Men, written by Phoenix Green, 32. I never met the broken man. Not the one you mean. The little child, the Terran Bald, was once a child like me. His father died outside of school. An accident, it seemed. And ever since that little child, his eyes no longer gleamed. The broken man sat all alone. Nobody was his friend. The Terran born was small and weak and never did defend. The other kids, both big and small, they saw him as their prey. And every bruise and every cut, they marked another day. I never talked to that small boy. I never even knew the pain and death and suffering that he was going through. The broken man sat silently as children aged and grew, and soon he started helping those whose time at school was new. He spent his days, he spent his nights, and taught them all he knew. He only ever stopped when he was chased out of the room. The broken man sat patiently as people left the room. He had no one to celebrate that he'd done it too. He'd finished school, he'd cleaned it up, and then he'd said goodbye. The cleaners were surprised when all the heaters went awry. The broken man sat willingly out in the pouring rain. The bridge was high, the wind was harsh, the cold, it caused him pain. But over time, all by himself, he talked the girl away. A suicide was never seen, a life was duly saved. Her family, they heard about their savior in the rain, but nobody could find the man when no one knew his name. 
The broken man came running when the city was aflame. The shells and bombs and guns did all to stop the man in vain. For days and weeks and months he worked to save those trapped below. And every day he swore revenge upon the hated foe. Then broken man served willingly on planets near and far. His heroism legendary. He was our leading star. First one, then two, then ten, then twelve, then countless, countless more. The one he saved returned from distant, endless, brutal war. And one day near Palmetto's star, the message they came, the brutal tale of the last stand and a hero born of flames. The broken man, now smeared across a narrow patch of rock, made one last speech, made one last stand, before his life was lost. Because I know what broken does and know where broken leads, I swore upon my mother's death that none will break as me. When father died, my brother wept and got himself a gun. I couldn't stop his suicide despite how fast I run. Mother drank herself to death, a car, a mangled wreck. I was not old enough to grab the keys before she left. And sister grabbed a rope and showed me how to tie a noose. I never would have left the room if I'd seen the roof. But father died in martyrdom. He saved a lot of lives. His life was given willingly to stop those kids' demise. They never told that school about the fate that would be in and each and every one of them, a life to live and gleam. And now, I see as Father did, the lives that we will save. They'll sing our songs forevermore, until we meet our grave. For mothers, brothers, fathers, sisters, friends, and so much more, we give our lives for better days, and broken men, no more. End of story. Story number three. Rifles are not ones. Written by Led Azide, 221. Hey, uh, what's this? The elven soldier pointed to the Nuvian soldier's sleek, black rectangular object that had an elongated tube coming out of the end of it. The Nuvian soldier then unslung his object. Oh, this, it's my rifle. I use it when I encounter people I don't like that are 3,000 meters away. The elven soldier was shocked. His one could only cast spells that reach out to maybe 100 meters. Oh, it's your wand then. Why not just say that instead? The Nuvian soldier tilted his head in a way that even the elven soldier knew that the foreign soldier was taken back. This is no wand. A wand can't make someone's head explode into a million pieces. A wand can't cast 700 spells in a minute. A wand can be snapped in half with a knee. A rifle, however, can't. The soldier tried snapping his rifle with his knee. See, try snapping this with your knee. I assure you if you do, you'll make everyone who worked on this M5 modular battle rifle roll in their grave. He then slung his rifle, now deep in salt, or perhaps roll in the ocean. I don't think they got burials at land. The Nuvan soldier looked at the elven soldier, who was clearly distressed. Still, he decided to press on. Softer this time. Look, sorry about all that. Rough day said the Nuvan soldier. You know the real difference, though. Your ones are made for everything. Attacking people, lifting chairs, cooking dinner, and other things. This, he turned around and pointed at his rifle. This is only meant for killing. The elven soldier composed himself. But why? Why limit such a thing to just killing? The Nuvan soldier shrugged. I don't know. Take that up with R&D, too. Find out why. Nearing new directives over the comlink, the Nuvan soldier walked out leaving the elven soldier by himself. 
Damn, these new Nuban allies are crazy. They wouldn't remain allies for long. Men of Story Tales from Outer Space 1683 Story number one. Humans holding the line, written by Flaming Raven. My name is Grisex. I am a member of the Runan, a race of avian bipeds with no ability to fly. This, uh, is not an easy story to tell. Many things were all happening so fast. It all seems like a, uh, what's the words the Terrans use? Uh, oh yes, a fever dream. It was during the Thuga Plague, yes. It was on the play, wait. What was that? You don't know what the Thuga Plague is, well. Let me tell you then. The Thuga Plague, named after the first planet that fell to it, is a form of microbe that can absorb other living cells and replicate perfect copies. We don't know what triggers it, but at some point the host undergoes a horrifying mutation. There appears to be no standard for the mutation. It may be the Thuga host becomes a colonial organism after infection. Said infection may be carried out on a genetic level. Said infection occurs when the microorganism comes into contact with the victim's blood. Reports have been made about completely new creatures arising from the pools of blood. The only effective weapons against the plague appear to be fire, energy-based weapons, and a recent release of human technology, molecular destabilizers. Alright, now that you've been informed of the Thuga Plague, it is time to begin. It was on the Terran planet Thermopylae, in the capital city, Ephialtes. The streets were chaos. Evacuation sites were being abandoned just as fast as they were set up. I was part of the relief effort of the Runan had sent to help the Terrans. We started with four million. One day later, we were now numbered at twelve. I was defending an evacuation site that had stood the longest, Site Epsilon. I was surrounded by charred bodies of what were once people. Honest to God's living, breathing people. I stood alone against the shambling hordes of teeth and claws until I heard it. A familiar whir of Terran destabilizer, a blast of orange light, and the Thuga that was about to spew its stomach acid at me was naught but ash. This bought us time as the Thuga instinctively pulled back, away from the destabilizer. Looking to my left, I saw them, a group of Terrans. They were not soldiers. They were civilians. I looked to the evacuation shuttles to see that they had reached maximum capacity. Why aren't you trying to leave? Aren't you afraid of dying? I could not help but ask. The one who had fired the shot began to laugh. He then pointed to the shuttle closest to us, more specifically, to a woman holding what they could only be her daughter. You see those two? That's my sister. That's my niece. I'm not sure what kind of bonds your people have, but that's my blood right there, he said, stepping up to the barricade. I don't have anyone, no friends, no kids, hell. I'm still a virgin, so I know I don't have any lovers. He took a rifleman's stance, keeping his knee loose and his shoulders taut. The others began to point as well, to various people on the various shuttles. I was bewildered. Here I was. Swindled into thinking that this would be a blue milk run, and these Terrans were willing to stay behind. If I were in their shoes, I would be throwing people out of those shuttles to squeeze myself in. They took up positions, and the shuttle's engines activated. 
the deafening hum pulled the Thuga from their hiding places. We had one hour until the shuttles could come back. I expected the Terrans to simply hold the line, be stoic in the face of death. I was wrong. I heard manic laughter from my left. Hell yeah, come and get some, you dead space rejects. You want a piece of me? Well, come get it. The Terrans were yelling. The Terran whom first spoke started singing. For the grace, for the might of our Lord, for the home of the holy, for the faith, for the way of the sword, gave their lives so boldly. For the grace, for the might of our Lord, in the name of his glory, for the faith, for the way of the sword, came to tell their story again. This drew out a genuine laughter from the other humans. Then one of the Terrans was hit by a spike made of the Runan's talon. Her arm immediately began to mutate. Her other hand shot out to grab an eviscerator grenade. She pulled the pin with her teeth, breaking a few, and yelled, Witness me! as she sprinted towards the horde of Thuga. I could only look onward in horror as the grenade detonated, turning all biological material then a ten-meter radius into pure carbon. I expected a wail of grief. Instead, the humans let out a roar of hatred. They started hurling more insults and even a few brand new slurs at the inexorable horde. This went on, the Terrans going through their cycle of rage, hilarity and spite. Never ending was the tide of teeth, viscera, and claws. Whenever a Terran was infected, they died taking as many as they could with them. Eventually, it was just me and the first Terran. I heard the shuttle approaching, but so were the Thuka. I knew in that moment exactly what was going to happen. If we both ran, the Thuka would cut us down as we made for the shuttle. They would infect the pilot and fly it to where they could get more food. I refused to let that happen. I was a soldier of the meritocracy. These Terrans gave their lives just to get us to this point. I heard the shuttle land and its doors opened. I was about to wave them off when I felt a blunt object slam into the side of my head. Sounds were muffled, my vision blurred, but a few words came through the fog. Get him out of here, shouted the Terran. I'll hold them off. That's not an option. We're getting you both out, another voice shouted back. I heard a distant click of the eviscerator grenade. I'm already infected. Just get him out, the Terran shouted again. My vision cleared for about a moment. The Terran was standing upon a pile of eviscerator grenades. Tell my family. I love them, came his voice. For the first time it sounded broken. Nothing like the spit and vinegar he had shown previously. Before the shuttle doors closed, I saw the Terran bathed in golden light. To this day, I owe Michael Hackett my life, and what a life it has been. It's been, well, 85 years since that day, and ever since that day, I've been living my life as best I could, trying every day to honor the sacrifices those Terrans made. Caden Bennett, 32. Ishwari Namgala, 40. James Royce, 65. Kimberly Hale, 29. Stephen Garcia, 51. Tavian Freeman, 28. And Michael Hackett, 22. There is a monument to the fallen of Thinopoli, inscribed below the names of the fallen of four words, Per Aspera et Astra. 
For those who have not studied ancient human languages, it translates as follows. Through hardship to the stars. End of story. Story number two. Small, fragile, and destined to die. Written by In Babylon They Wept. Aaron could feel the lich standing over him. He was bleeding, head face down in the mud, too weak to roll over, too weak to even spit. But no cage of dying flesh could contain the hate he felt for the creature looming above him. He felt a clawed hand on his back, surprisingly gentle, as it flipped him over. He almost wished it hadn't. Seeing the light of his final sunset was glorious, but there was a moment where he'd seen under the creature's hood, seen the void that cast a shadow of darkness itself. He'd always heard there was a skeleton under those rags. The truth was so much worse. That same hand, still soaked in his blood, reached for him again, and so he tensed. Bloody froth forced from his lips by the effort. It was just as gentle as it was the first time, however, cradling his head so that he could watch the sunset without having to strain his eyes. It was disconcerting. He wanted to ask why he was doing this, but he couldn't manage the effort. The creature seemed to sense his concerns, and he felt a tendril of its inhuman consciousness brush against his own. I don't hate you. He reeled. Even at its most gentle, the mind of the horror holding him could crush him by accident. He felt like a field snake next to a leviathan, a stone next to a mountain. He tried to shield his mind from the presence, but its words hammered down implicably. I pity you. Small, fragile, destined to die. If you were lucky, who would have been in your bed? Instead, it is here. On behalf of a king that will never bother to learn your name, the most you had to look forward to was a life of toil in the fields. You didn't even get a quick end at the hands of my servants. Bleeding out face down in the mud was your lot in life. There was a pause before the creature continued. Its inner voice changed from sympathetic to cold. You were a mere man sent to stand before an army of monsters. How could I not pity you? Misery ripped through him. He'd held it in his whole life, bracing himself for the lich's inevitable return. But those final words tore his walls down. He felt like he was drowning in helplessness, choking on his own despair. Then the despair ignited. He spat in the lich's face. The effort of it almost killed him, his vision blackening at the corners, his muscles burning like he'd been set in fire. The lich recoiled and he could feel the defenses of its ancient consciousness waver. It was the only chance he would ever have, and he took it, ramming his mind into the psychic wall of the lich with all of the force of his soul. He couldn't tell who was more surprised to feel the wall give in, him or the lich. There has never been a time I didn't fear you, monster. Stories have been passed down through generations about how unstoppable you are, how no grave can hold you, how every time you are defeated you simply rise again. But I never realized what they truly revealed, how many times you've been stopped. I am a mere man sent to battle an army of monsters. I am a small and fragile thing. 
destined to die. But it is men like me, small and fragile, that have killed you throughout the ages. You will meet your end, and the plowman's spear, a fisherman's strident, a harvestman's scythe, again and again, as many times as it takes. And when the stars burn to ash, and this world is nothing but ice and ruin, you will find no refuge in heaven or hell, because both will be full of men like me that you sent there. Men that you trained to hold the line. You will learn to hate me, creature. I swear it. The lich sat in stunned silence at the end of Arryn's rebuke. Fury dripped from it like a snow melt from a glacier, colder than freezing, colder than death. Its pinpring points of light met Arryn's brown eyes, but he still refused to look away. It was closer to death than life, but he still blazed with defiance. The hand that had been gentle, cradling his head, clenched into a fist, crushing Arryn's skull like a rotten tomato. With nothing else to do, the lich stood up, taking a moment to wipe the spit off his face before shaking his hands free of the blood and bone that had once been a human head. Then it stalked back to its war camp. It had planning to do, and for the first time in centuries, it felt strangely unsure. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1684 Story number one. Invited to a human dinner. Written by Mother Melee. I understand you've been invited to a Terran festival. Terrans tend to focus on food for these gatherings. What follows are the do's and don'ts for Terran group gatherings. One, Terrans are social creatures. They will strive to connect with anything. They have created entire days to come together. They will often have no reason, but still strive to celebrate and connect. Don't question while they are celebrating. It'll only confuse and irritate them. 2. Some food items are considered traditional. Do not question these items, as you will be considered disrespectful for even questioning their presence. For additional information, read Human Holidays. Number 3. Terrans take substantial pride in feeding visitors. In fact, it is considered rude if a Terran does not offer refreshments to a visitor. Not being offered an item, either a beverage or substance, by a Terran who is not in state of manic is a slight. If not offered a beverage or snack in a calm environment, understand that you may not be welcome. Number four. If offered an item for consumption, even if you are not in the state to consume, accept it. Even if not consumed, a rejected offer of drink or food will be considered a slight for Terrans. Now that you've learned how to navigate the cultural meal rituals for Terrans, understand that there are some regional differences based on the origin of your Terrans tribe. As such, do your due diligence to ensure that you do not offend these primate species. Now that you've educated yourself and your escorts on the ritual of Terran feeding, you need to inform your group of the dangers of Terran food. While Terrans rarely seek to hurt others, the products that they consider edible are questionable for many species. While the full list of Terran foods seek this guide, terranpoisons.pdf. For those approaching a quick meal with Terrans, keep these concerns in mind. 1. Red. If you see something red in your meal, ask what the origin is. On Terra, red often means acid. Ask before you consume. A. Tomato. A tomato is a common and widely used fruit in Terra. It is used in nearly every tribe. It is a class 2 acid. It is safe for most species. 
but be sure you have tolerance of your crew before consuming. B. Chilies. This product is valued for its capsaicin, a toxic chemical that causes pain. Terrans use this in their weapons, but also, inexplicably, in their food. It causes intense pain and burning. They appear to join this. Number two, green. Products of this hue often mean reasonable products. However, it can also be dangerous. Ask before consuming. A. Chilies. See above. B. Mint. A common ingredient in cleaning supplies, including self-care and hygiene products. Terrans will subject themselves to this poison. C. Cilantro. Some Terrans don't like this. It is unclear why. But if it bothers them, it is best to avoid. 3. Yellow. A. Chilies. See above. B. Lemons. Filled with an acid of which they are grown for flavor. Often used to make a common drink lemonade. This marriage is often sold by Terran children. Be aware of the innocent youth selling this acid on the street corners. 4. Orange. A. Chilies. See above. B. Citrus fruits. These come in a variety of sizes and shapes. Oranges, grapefruits, nectarines. Enjoyed for flavoring, juice, and raw. Made of acidic products. These are considered treats for humans. 5. Gray. A. Terrans eat forms of fungus. The primary forms are gray. Avoid all forms. This is a product that will ultimately eat its consumer in an endless loop. Educated Terrans know this, but continue regardless. 6. White. A. Chilies. See above. B. Rice. Simple grain. Abundant. 7. Alcohol. A. Poison. B. Actual poison. C. Even our best haven't figured out this one yet. It's a poison. D. Don't drink it. This is a level 3 death world inhabited by friendly savages. They torture themselves with their own substance. Use caution. Don't come hungry. They may mean you no harm, but offer you food that is dangerous. It is harmful to them as well. They have become accustomed to consuming poison, and will even challenge their familial mates to challenges of consuming poison, even when welcoming and friendly. They may be dangerous. The spinach is good. End of story. Story number two. Wikipedia's role in the Renewal Empire's collapse. Wikipedia. This page is protected to prevent vandalism. Wikipedia war redirects ya. For other articles, see Wikipedia War Disambiguation. The Renewal Empire Collapse was a period of time between 2236 and 2239 AD, where the influence of the Renewal people over the Galactic community dwindled. Most historians attribute the failure of the Renewal State to rampant corruption and questions about the legitimacy of the Council of Five. Note 1. Corruption. Before 2236 AD, very little was known about the internal structure of Renewal Society. An investigation by Microsoft Galactic was launched later that year to test the waters about potential partnership. Within only two weeks, the investigation was cut short with Microsoft citing staggering financial corruption. The lead investigator died the same day on an unexplained shuttle accident. Note 2. Several other corporations attempted to open relations with Renewal but none resulted in a partnership. A review of the data by the UN Interspecies Corruption Index resulted in a complete redesign of the scoring system. The Renewal Empire was given a corruption score of 815 out of 1,000, beating North Korea's updated score of 89 
out of 1,000. Failure of renewal censorship. In 2237, humanity was granted unregulated access to Gullnet. Cybersecurity companies uncovered and released fixes for 23,905 vulnerabilities present on the current system. As Galnet 2.0.2 had been in operation since roughly 5000 BC, the updates were deemed too impractical. The renewal estimated the process would take Galnet offline for roughly two years. A self-replicating worm, using previously uncovered exploits, was able to update 99.4% of the system within 24 hours. Mankind was granted permission to develop and maintain Galnet 3.0, in exchange for a repeal of several censorship laws. These laws had previously been used extensively by the Renewal. Within six weeks, the Renewal Empire slash Controversies page grew to over 5 gigabytes in size and was split into 55 separate articles. The Renewal Empire was unsuccessful in deleting these pages despite multiple attempts. State-sponsored attacks on Wikipedia Following the popularity of Wikipedia and its effects on renewal political discourse, multiple cyber warfare groups linking to the renewal empire began targeting Wikipedia. Notable attacks include advanced malware, which failed due to previous security improvements, distributed denial of service attacks resulting in a 15% slowdown of some regions, edits originating within a governance district of renewal prime, including deleting the entire controversy section and replacing all instances of corruption with corrupt fun. Due to Wikimedia's tiered caching system, including servers in several star systems, services was not impacted significantly from users. Note 4. Downfall. The Renewal Empire was ruled by a Council of Five, which could issue state mandates by majority vote. Officially, the Council was elected by the people, any renewal citizen with an adult fangs could submit a candidate or vote on a candidate's already submitted. However, a cursory investigation by the Interspecies Corruption Index shows that there was no correlation between popularity numbers and who was elected. The Empire did not have the infrastructure in place to collect votes on a planetary scale. The state quietly removed the least popular council members from official record and began referring to the council as a council of four. This was easily debunked by searching Wikipedia. Renewal Empire slash Corruption was in the most viewed article in 2239. Concerns about the legitimacy of the government, alongside growing corruption scandals, led to the Empire officially dissolving in 2239. Renewal Prime was purchased by Microsoft in 2241. References 1. The Council of Number Pending by J. Anderson 2. When you're trying to bring back Windows Phone and the alien blows up your ship. Reddit r slash programmer humor. 3. Good news. North Korea is now only 9% corrupt. Reddit r slash best Korea. 4. Hey, we're Wikipedia administrators. Ask us anything about the recent alien attacks on our servers. Reddit r slash IAMA. 5. Microsoft just moved their update service to a different solar system to get around privacy laws. Reddit r slash asshole design. End of story. Story number three. Warriors Don't Cry. Written by Pharrell1234. That was what I was always told. That warriors don't cry. I was born to the Crackham clan on our home plane you never. Our people usually go into military of the Federation of United Planets. 
It's an honor to die on the battlefield. But crying is a sign of weakness. Only the weak cry. From the battle of Zagtus with its poison-filled lakes to the dry, scorching wastelands of Hyabai, I have never cried. No matter how much our purple blood was spilled, no matter how many days we were fighting. Our leaders were laughing when the humans arrived in the galaxy scene. Such small, clawless, bipedal creatures who cry so often. They called it empathy for the weak. We called it weakness. But now I sit here sobbing. My human friend Alex has gently wrapped his delicate arms around my body while I uncontrollably sob in his shirt. I was mistaken. It was impossible not to cry. Are you all right? Alex asks while his hands gently pat the soft fur on my back. Feels soothing. Yes, I answer, to save the last pieces of my broken dignity. I know he can see through my lies. Should I do it? He asks, trying to give me a way out of my situation. But I can't give in. My herd mother would call me a disgrace. Should I say yes? I can't even show more weakness. Even Alex isn't crying. So I push him away and continue cutting onions. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1685 We gazed into the abyss written by Lone Noble. We were not the first to reach out into an uncaring void, nor were we the last. Like so many species before us, and many to come after us, it was our crowning achievement, a moment of great triumph, as the races and peoples rose to heights unthinkable even to our ancestors and tackled the most challenging of all trials of life. Species like us were common around the stars, but our achievements were one in a million, not to be diminished as petty. We are known as the Ascendant. There was not a moment of pride for everyone, of course. There were species who faced the great trial in a moment of panic, with less preparation and enthusiasm than the rest of us. These species ruled the galactic stage. Worlds cracked and destroyed by natural disaster. They rose from the flames of adversity and became stronger than ever before. Wills of the hardest steel allowed them to make the hardest decisions and survive in the most hostile environment in existence. With dwindling resources, these people, the Voidborn, carry a great deal of respect from all who see them and hear their stories. They set examples for the rest of us, always prepared to rise to any challenge. Some are as kind and generous, knowing the worst of the universe encourage them to pick others up, that they may never suffer as they did. Others see wisdom gained in struggle, and are willing to lead those who have less experience. These species lead our united peoples in the stars, make the hard choices that allow us to survive against the hard challenges we face each day. There are foolhardier species as well, of course, the persistent. These species looked into the void and underestimated the challenge. In their hubris, they launched themselves into the stars, believing themselves prepared and able, only to be struck down by the most violent of biomes, crippled by the lack of resources, and thoroughly beaten by the realities of a universe that wants nothing more than to keep us trapped in our place. 
on our worlds. They too, however, endured. They made it to the cosmos and finally joined the rest of us, even if the resources wasted and the lives lost can never be returned. The Great Trial was too completed by them. Many of them hold wisdom far greater than the Ascendant. After all, failure is as harsh but effective teacher. The three types of species, three histories, are the few species who made it to the stars in our galaxy. Many had failed the great trial. Countless species had fallen, some never even tried. But our people had crawled to the top, and we all agreed on a great truth. Life is a trial, and there is no greater trial than living in space. Any species that has broken orbit understands this. Merely being in the presence of such unspeakable horror is challenge enough. It'll crush your body, blast your corpse full of radiation, it'll burn you, and it'll freeze you all at once. The cosmos is without mercy and will erase you without the decency to remember your tale. We were the peoples that saw all the danger and spat in its face, rose to the great height regardless, as if to prove our worth to all who would bear witness we would never be underestimated. We three together, the Ascendant, the Voidborn, and the Persistent, were the only ones who had the right to the rewards the universe had to offer. For we were the only ones who had fought for it. We believed ourselves chosen in a way, I suppose. The universe was a great figure, showing us tough love that we endured made us worthier than others that our endurance was the greatest of all, the pinnacle of the universe. Some days we can't decide if we're angry or grateful to discover how wrong we were. The edge of our galaxy was visited by a fleet of silver warships, soaring in formation across the mostly empty void, spreading across the galaxy, scanning the most hostile worlds, landing forces on the most doomed stellar bodies, and mapping the stars around them, they utterly outclassed us in every way. Our fleets were our pride, made of the mantles and spoils of many worlds, but most of our resources went to our colonies and space stations, keeping our people alive and comfortable. Defense from potential threats didn't factor in when we were constantly surrounded by the greatest threat that we'd ever seen. We thought that we were surely doomed. In the end, we were so small they almost passed right by us. It was the Voidborn in the end who decided to contact these unknown entities. They felt together that we could tackle any challenge thrown at us. Perhaps they were wrong. Perhaps they were too emboldened by the past success. Or perhaps they were correct. In the end, no violent encounter came to pass. A diplomat from the Voidborn approached the vast fleet on a small diplomatic craft. They were about to hail them when the ships were pulled by an unknown force into the vessel at the peak of the formation. At home, we all panicked. We had lost connection with these communications and could no longer monitor status. The more rational of us decided to wait for two days until we took any action, for we could not know their fate. The rest of us watched with bated breath as the fleet stopped where they had encountered the diplomat. Just as we began to think the next challenge was upon us, the ship returned to us, with our diplomat and a small bipedal alien. It bore technology the likes of which we'd never seen, 
encased in some kind of armor far superior to the flimsy spacesuits that we'd all been forced to adopt. He introduced a new species, as humanity, and we came to understand why they'd approached us alongside the diplomat. We'd never have believed it if he'd told us himself. We still struggle to believe it now. When we gazed into the abyss, the abyss stared back. We understood, or so he thought. We saw the hungry darkness, the gluttons for all matter around them. We saw balls of fire, prepared to raise anything foolish enough to approach too closely. We saw, most terrifying of all, things completely beyond our ability to comprehend. Unknowns that we had scarcely begun to research. Dangers we could not even begin to understand, let alone counter. Humanity was similar to us in many ways, and yet so very different. They'd been born into this universe like all of us, on a sole planet, but they too refused to contain their greatness on such a small world. They had spread out into an uncaring void, just like us, defeated the challenges that came, just like us. They built stations, just like us, and colonized worlds, just like us. However, their galaxy, the Milky Way, as they called it, was utterly barren of life. Humanity believes that they were the sole life that existed there. The rest of us secretly speculated that they were the only species that was the world to overcome the great trial, all others having fallen long ago. By the time they had utterly conquered that, they had learned the lessons of the persistent. With the enthusiasm of the ascendant, and conquered all challenges with the willpower of any void born. They spread beyond the galaxy, seeking out other life, and it seemed that they had finally found it. Having heard the tale to the finished, we were naturally inspired. Even if we could not understand how they had reached such heights, the universe is unforgiving and cruel, and they should not have been able to carry themselves further than all of us combined unassisted. It was then the diplomat they had returned to us, in a shaky voice, explained what we had learned from his time aboard the vessel. They had gazed into the abyss, and the abyss stared back. They understood what they saw. They saw a hungry darkness, gluttons for all around them, and with it, the perfect place for prison stations, inescapable and isolated. They saw balls of fire, prepared to raise anything foolish enough to approach it closely, and with it, a source of endless energy and power to fuel the ever-growing domain. They saw, most terrifyingly of all, things completely beyond their ability to comprehend, unknowns that they had scarcely begun to research, dangers they could not begin to understand, let alone counter. And with those dangers they saw endless potential and discovery, challenges unending and stories yet to be told. Where we saw only danger, humanity eagerly saw potential. Since the beginning of their tale, they gazed into the most hostile place in the universe and wanted to know what lay beyond. It was a hard truth to swallow with the implications it carried. We believed ourselves chosen of the cosmos, survivors tried by fire, conquerors of the hardest challenges there was, reaping the rewards. We were survivors indeed, for that was all we had ever done, survived. 
humanity had thrived. They never saw the great trial as a final step in a species, never settled for the thing to be the end of their tale, stepped beyond and always looked for the next fight, rose and conquered greater challenges than we had yet to begin to approach. We thought that we were the chosen, but it was they who saw the greatest dangers of the universe and felt called by it. The final of our four types of species, only humans worth enough to fall under its banner, the summoned, called to the abyss itself to explore it to the ends of existence. The fleet has long since left, though the colonies and space stations they set up remain. The summoned have a quest to explore it all, and it will not wait even for us. But they taught us something valuable indeed. There is more to the universe than what we have now, and if humanity could do it alone, then we can do far more united. The peoples of humanity humbled and inspired us, whilst it was bitter pull to swallow. It is thanks to that we will become more than we have ever been before. Our stories have merely begun. Perhaps one day we will have something to teach them, too. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1686. Story number one. Personality Matrix, written by Random3x. Human Victor, which personality matrix will you be installing in this upcoming interaction? Nixos's vocalator asked as he entered his office. Pardon? Victor responded with a tilt of his head, looking the sentient machine up and down in confusion. This unit has observed you run a multiple of personality matrices when interacting with other sentients, Nixos explained. Uh, sorry, uh, still no clue wh what you're on about. C can you clarify a bit more? Uh, maybe an example of what you mean might help me understand, Victor suggested. Very well, Nixos gave a stiff nod in his attempt to mimic the human affirmative gesture. Does human Victor recall when we interacted with the Vakini? Nixos asked. To which Victor nodded. They were, as human Lucy stated, boisterous. Yet human Victor was able to interact effectively with them, as if he were born of their species. Well, yeah, gotta be one of the lads and all, Victor said with a playful shrug. But when we interacted with the Jujungar, the human Victor displayed multiple instances of personality matrix that was markably different than the Vakini, Nixos explained. Ah, I think I get it now. Victor nodded, stroking his stubble chin. What you have observed is something near every human can do, Victor began. Please elaborate, human Victor, Nixos said, his multiple photoreceptors starting to shine, indicating that he was recording. Well, um, you are aware that humans are our social species, right? Victor asked. Indeed. This unit has been observed many times with the fluffles, kitties, and puppers, as you refer to the numerous diminutive third species that we have encountered. Nixos nodded, recording humanity's tendency for physical contact with what they deemed cute creatures. <laughs> they were adorable, Victor said bashfully, rubbing the back of his head. Uh, but anyway, part of our social abilities to adapt to our surroundings. Lots of mirror neurons and the like, Victor said, giving a shrug, indicating that he was unsure of the exact science reasons behind it. So we as a species are, are good at changing our behavior to match our surroundings, uh, Say, I'm surrounded by loud and proud aliens that love a drink and a song. Well, I can match him. 
Then we meet well-to-do and ritualistic species. Well, I can match them as well, Victor explained. And all humans are capable of disability? Nixos asked, curious. Well, not all humans, but I'd say a fair lot of us can. Take Lucy, for example. She used to work in the service industry. That requires a lot of polite and controlled interactions with customers. He paused to make sure Nixos was following. Well, she had what she called a work Lucy, for lack of better analogy. As you would say, she installed a work Lucy personality matrix. Then when she finished, she could relax and return to her default settings, Victor explained. See what I mean? It isn't our personalities that are changed, but our behaviors that are altered to match our environment and situation. Victor finished, glancing at Nixus, whose photoreceptors light began to fade. This has been a fascinating discussion, human Victor. Nixus said as he rose. Can't be that fascinating, really, Victor said with a shrug. On the contrary, human Victor, my entire line was created to aid with diplomacy of other races due to their inability to adapt to other species. They maintain their personalities and behavior throughout their every interaction regardless of the species that they were interacting with. Humans are the first species that I've aided that have adapted themselves much the same as we do. If anything, human Victor, I am confused with the lack of work that I am left to do. Nexus finished before leaving Victor alone in his office. End of story. Story number two. Galactic Pets, written by Poe Tattoo. Humans have always been obsessed with keeping non-sapient animals as their pets, even when they joined the galactic stage. They brought along their pet dogs, cats, and even snakes. No species before them has ever kept any non-sapient animal for no real purpose. They seem to always be taking care of these pets for no visible benefit. A short interview with a human... So why did you get a dog? I don't know. It was cute. So you used your own credits to take care of a non-sapient species because it was cute. Does it do anything special? Yep, um, it was cute. That's it. Uh, not, not much special. Many people were bewildered by this behavior, going so far as to call it a waste of credits to take care of these pets. Yet the story of pets didn't end there. Before joining the galactic stage, there were some humans who took care of seemingly dangerous animals for the fun of it. These pets could tear them apart quickly or even inject lethal toxins into them. Danger noodles, they were called. Nonetheless, they took care of them because it was fun. This concerned some species when they joined the galactic stage, and rightfully so. As humans integrated into a new society, it became apparently clear that they would take the next to any animal as a pet. Anarchus are a non-sapient class 4 danger species, capable of wiping out a whole villages in the early days of the Carvac civilization, killing thousands standing at around 5 standard meters tall and 5 standard meters long. They were clearly not a species to mess around with, let alone keep as a pet. Humans just didn't seem to care, and one even kidnapped an Anarcha from a lab. It was found four years later, loosely restrained in the human's habitat, when interrogated, he simply said, It's cute, like a small fluffy T-Rex. Upon request to return to the Anarcha, the human declined, opting instead to request a fine. As the original lab no longer required the sample, and there was simply no law in place preventing citizens from keeping dangerous species as pets, it was surprisingly approved for 25,000 galactic credits. Bizarrely, 
The human even seemed to treat it as simply as buying price for a pet. End of story. Story number three. Don't wear fancy hats. Written by Akarain. Don't wear fancy hats. Audio log. Cycle 52. 83rd stellar rotation of His Holiness Glabarath Spinlagrap this 92nd. Commander Alp Alpa of the 7th Fang. It has been 10 local cycles since our invasion of the human colony world, New New Hampshire. Despite securing orbital superiority early on, the ground campaign has been a complete disgrace with all the Holy Ancestors. I'm currently in transit to a different command base in order to take over the regiment that has lost all of its commanding officers to those infernal snipers that the humans put so many resources into. At this point, my prediction is that at least 80% of the human army stationed here, named Militia by captured locals, are trained exclusively at long-distance warfare, as I have seen no thrill nor tale of any soldier engaging combat at more honorable distances. What irks me most about the ongoing military catastrophe is that this will be my second such redeployment since we landed on this accursed rock. Even the most optimistic estimates put officer casualties at over 40%. And the less said about the generals, the better. Though, at this point, I think everyone can agree that traveling around an occupied and still active war zone in an open plinth carried by slaves was a bad idea, no matter how uh, stylish it might be. In the first few cycles in the invasion, there was a lot of confusion and panic as command tried to figure out how the humans could so accurately target the commanding officers. Then one of the slave soldiers pointed out that all officers, nobles and priests had their heraldry and rank tattooed on their cranial crests, making them highly visible to snipers. After executing the slave for insubordination, it was agreed on that the crests were the most likely cause of the casualties. Upon hearing of this in a stroke of tactical genius, I immediately covered my own crest in mud to prevent the vile humans from identifying my rank. In my own valuable opinion, it'll be a major boon for the army as a whole to have me continue to be promoted higher into command structure. My superior intellect, tactical insight, and handsome looks will no doubt be innumerable benefits for the morale and effectiveness of the invasion fleet as a whole and even onwards of future battlefield. End of audio log. Kill confirmed, Caltharian officer down. Roger that. How many is that now, Stephen? Twenty-seven. They are getting smarter, though. This one had a bunch of mud on his head frill thingy. Well, crap. How did you know that he was an officer, then? I mean, it's not that great of a disguise if you're the only one with mud on your head, and there are no other visible officers in the whole formation. Good enough for me. How long do you reckon till the UNSF gets their collective shit together, enough to send us some marines or something? Probably only a few more days, honestly, though. If these guys are having this much trouble dealing with a bunch of farmers armed with hunting rifles, they won't know what the fuck hit them when the real military shows up. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1687 A Thousand Ships, written by Void Agent Hi, Com, this is Paul Revere. The station commander took a deep breath to make sure his voice was steady. If anything remained intact on Earth, the recording of what he said next would likely be part of it. Subspace sensor platform confirm 800 and counting capital grade transition distortions and 1500 and counting escort grade. 
I am launching scouting drones and activating the Shattered Heaven Protocol. He paused again, and then, Boyce Horse said, They're here, my god! They're here. Humanity had been at war with the Enduring Empire of the Second Star for 27 Terran years. Instead of a swift, decisive victory, like the Empire had usually enjoyed since expanding into this arm of the galaxy, the war had dragged on for cycle after cycle. This was an annoyance to the Empire, but ultimately, it was only that. Despite the fact, the Emperor was getting impatient. After ascending to the throne and realizing how valuable human technology, tactical, and strategic input might be, Emperor Tai Suna Jai had pushed for a sooner end to the conflict. Besides, they had reasoned with their war council. They didn't need the other Technic species in this arm getting the idea that all walls of the Empire could be drawn out to such an extent. To this end, the Empire had, separately from its already deployed fleets in the Orion Arm, assembled the Grand Strike Force that alone might have defeated the human navy, or perhaps multiple navies. The Imperials could never be bothered to remember every barbarian nation of every fractured species. By the time the Strike Force, a fleet, really, or even two, had fully assembled about 13 million kilometers outside the orbit of Pluto. It was composed of 878 capital ships and 1,743 escorts, not including logistical assets. In comparison, the Unified Nations of Humanity had been able to assemble 106 capital ships, if one was generous to some of the cruisers, and 308 escorts. Hancock Station, Lassiter Station, and the Great Star Federation supercarriers would be able to put about 1,300 fighters in space in total. But realistically, they would be cycling fighters in and out. The Shattered Heaven Protocol would awaken dormant systems, defend sized interplanetary strategic munitions scattered through the system, and use every military and government satellite secret routines to guide themselves to their targets. The huge, heavy missiles could each carry a couple dozen submunitions but if they were intercepted before the terminal phase, all of those would go down with them. The fact of the matter was that despite the humans' knowledge that they had been steadily losing for 27 years, they hadn't expected the enemy to be in Seoul until about five weeks before. That was very little time to prepare, and even with the wormhole gates, reinforcements had been slow to return, especially since the Empire had not weakened any of its other fleets to assemble the strike force. Indeed, that was the reason many human governments had decided that the Empire could not possibly be gearing up for a deep strike. And so, humanity's last line of defense assembled to lose their final battle. Three weeks before. I must implore the Council to reconsider. The Sliv, appearing much like a strange wolf standing on its hind legs, sank into a distinctly defensive posture. As they addressed the leaders sitting about the low table before him, one of them replied to him in a dismissive tone, Grand Defender of the Realm, there is simply no reason for us to come to the aid of the humans. Our debt of honor is, at best, an outdated nicety we assign to a species we've gone to war with before. Something snapped in Grand Defender of the Realm sings with fire's eyes. Something kindled. His body rose up to its full, intimidating height, his sash and the colored mark tied to his right arm, flashing. An outdated nicety! 
Why even offer them that, when we have no honor of our own with which to judge others worthy of it? You, in particular, have no honor, Counselor, and I dare you to challenge me on that. A hushed whisper of shock swept through the chamber, but before the accused Counselor could reply, Sings with Fire continued. A dare you will not answer, but that does not matter. As no one has ever truly convinced of your honor, in fact, I would go so far as to say the only thing that might redeem any appreciable measure of that elusive modicum of honor you must have once possessed is to, for once in your career, fulfill your duty to the people. The chamber was silent now. Sings with fire sent a mental command through his neural implant, activating a political star map. The nations of other species glowed in different colors, but one stood out more than the others, a harsh, scarlet region. Do you see it, Counselor? Growled Sings with Fire in a measured, rumbling tone. The Enduring Empire, do you think they will stop with the humans? Do you think they'll stop with the Orsonid? Or perhaps their expansion will halt after conquering the Rorsuk? Right, on our border. I'm going to assume your negligence in enforcing the security of our species is born from an utter lack of cognitive function rather than a treasonous, dishonorable, or otherwise malicious dereliction of your own duties. Before most of the Sylph and the Chamber could even fully process the rebuke, another counselor spoke up. What if coming to the human's aid merely makes us a target? Sings with fire made a harsh sound in his throat that was somewhere between an expression of humor and one of anger. You still do not realize. He sent another command, and the Scarlet Region drew back dramatically. Then again, then it disappeared, with sudden brutality. The Scarlet Region began glowing back to its former size in huge bursts. Two standard years, sinks with fire enunciated with great precision. The first incursion was two standard years ago. Again, silence reigned. My argument is made, the Grand Defender of the Realm said quietly. The Council of Primarch may have the floor. Admiral Thessilius, I appreciate our strategic situation, but I don't think that it's feasible for us, politically or militarily, to come to the rescue of humans. We are at war with them not ten cycles ago, and they were occupying our worlds until the end of the last cycle. Admiral Thessilius, the greatest Sanson Union's director of military intelligence, sighed inwardly. He knew the senator was probably right, but he also might have been fatally short-sighted. Thessalius wasn't about to allow himself to lose focus on the big picture. Not when everything he'd worked so hard to pull was at stake. Not when his family might ultimately suffer at the hands of the tyrants again. A note of desperation rang in his voice. I know we're crippled compared to our pre-war condition, Senator. And I know helping our former enemies might be unpopular. But you must think about the future. Despite the conflict there with the Enduring Empire... The humans were able to rally all of their militaries to fight both the war and one against us, as well as engage in an all-out other galactic affairs. And before both of those walls, they defeated the Sylve. Not only that, but they're the ones who oversaw the installation of our new government. Of you and me and our current positions. Not to mention those who will come after us to govern our children. House. Maybe those governs will be our children. They can do that now, regardless of what their cost may have been. My son, my daughter, they don't have to be warriors like me now. 
They need not lay down their lives for the better world because we've built the world for them. As he spoke, he saw some of the senators narrow their eyes in concentration. Some leaned forward ever so slightly. Some of them even looked like they agreed with him. The desperation left his voice, and it became hard and unflinching like the armored hull of a battleship. I will not give up this world. I will not stand idly by as those who adhere to the laws of war, even while we did not, are swept away. I will not watch as all we have worked for comes under threat from enduring empire. He's locked eyes with the senators directly opposite him. And I will not allow someone else's sons and daughters to live in the kind of world their fathers and mothers laid down their lives to prevent. He tapped a button on his cuff, and the smart walls surrounding them came to life as the lights dimmed. Nan Senators, I don't think aiding the humans will be nearly as unpopular as you might believe. I've mentioned their role in helping to create a new government, but what the people here on this capital will remember, marvelously, the Stokachi attacks. Stokachi was a relatively small city on the other main continent from the capital city that had seen the series of terrorist attacks from the bitter group of former freedom fighters who believed the recent revolution hadn't gone far enough. They'd bombed several areas in the city with binary explosives that they'd fabricated themselves, unable to get their hands on a tactical nuke or something worse. Their cilius twitched to the first image. Do you know why the people remember the attack senators? Do you know why the humans weren't seen as oppressors in the end? Do you know why some of the people might not just be willing, but eager to help the humans? This, this is why. He lifted one of his hands to gesture meaningfully at one of the smart wall screeds. They saved us from ourselves. Again. The image was perhaps one of the most well-known images in all recent history. A human stood in the center, in power armor, a war goddess wrapped in powerful artificial muscles and alloy weave. Yet, she had no weapon in hand. Instead, her exposed face showed her teeth clenched and her eyes filled with determination and pain. She fought not to kill, but to save those around her, and none of them were human. She held above her in her arms part of a collapsing building giving time to those trapped inside to flee to safety. Even to the senators, not humans themselves, she looked as though she didn't care for her own well-being as long as the people were able to make it out. And they had. Every single person not killed in the initial blasts had made it out alive. The Celius's grim voice rang out quietly. This human soldier served in the army of their nation of Canada. She had been on world for two days before she gave her life for aliens she did not know and never would. Two days, senators. The next image phased into view. Three humans, all wearing different models of power armor, stood in the middle of the debris-strewn street. The camera that had captured the image had a view well above and behind the action so all the senators could see a huddled mass of schoolchildren in the open, just a few meters behind the humans. On the other end of the street, a hovering truck bore nine terrorists carrying large weapons. Despite that, the humans had their weapons raised in brave defiance. My gods! one of the senators exclaimed. That's my daughter! That's when they saved my daughter! The Celius nodded. Yes, it is. 
a soldier from the new Terran hegemony, a marine from the United States, and a soldier from the United Kingdom. All of them survived, yet they clearly did not know that at the time that this would be the case. Yet they stood, Senator, between your daughter and a hail of steel. He allowed the hushed room to gaze upon the scene for a little longer, and then he switched to the next. This human, too, was in power armor, but like the first, they weren't attempting to kill anything. This image, also like the first, was well known to the people. The human was bent over a bloodied female, a bright hologram showing the inside of her abdomen floating over her as the human worked frantically to stabilize the dying person. The red crescent emblazoned on her armored bicep identified her as a medic, specifically of the new Mecca Republic. That woman, she worked so hard to save her, bled out despite her best efforts, Decilius said. And do you know what she did? She did not stop. She got up, sanitized her gauntlets, and moved on to the next wounded person, whose life she did save. And she saved the one after that, and the next three. She single-handedly saved 18 gravely wounded people, and was awarded the Alliance Silver Nova for outstanding medical aid rendered during a disaster. And the people know about that reward, Senators. The humans made sure our news services were informed of it. Don't you see? They were telling us something with that award. They were sending a message that told us how they saw us. She worked only on patients whose species was alien to her that day. Yet, she was awarded that Silver Nova. She was awarded a human medal for saving our people. They saw the saving of those lives the same as they saw the saving of human lives. There was no distinction made between our people and humans in that text that accompanied the award. The screens returned to their idle background, and the lights brightened. Basilius continued. We may not have much of a military left compared to what we had once, but I am prepared to lead every marine ship and soldier that we have to soul in defense of the humans and our own children. The first senator who stood was the one whose daughter had been saved by those three courageous humans. The children of the stars were a race, if they could even be classified as such, of what had once been protostellar matter, though they might have been something else even before that. Vast electrical storms and chemical interactions formed their thoughts, and usually these thoughts were slow, deliberate. They were not slow now, though they were still quite deliberate. The humans are in danger! The first put forth memories of how children perceived the humans flickered between vaguely defined clouds of plasma and gas and wildly twisted matter. They are good to us, the second sent back. We spoke with them. They listened. They knew their ships could hurt us with their star jumping. They knew that we could not fight them. They knew that they could gain more valuable things for themselves if they did not heed us. Yet, they did. The third had the strongest signal of all. They defended us. 
They sent their vessels of war and defended us. More, they sent their vessels of those who would seek knowledge. They spoke to us. More, they helped us explore our own past and vastly expanded our capability to understand the universe around us. The first replied, a flash of energy stretching out across the heavens for over a light week. We must defend them. We must defend the humans. The second cried out as well. Gather the ships, ready the shells. This shall be our gift to them. Our evolution into beings of action. Into beings who can defend those who would defend them. Elsewhere, a Rawawi scientist stood before his king, showing him just how much effort and resources it took for human scientists to cure the reaping plague. He pointed to charts, showing diagrams, held up a container of dead crop samples to show just how deadly the plague had been to their crops. Even when the plague had jumped from crops to Rawawi, and then from Rawawi to humans, even when the human scientists had been utterly horrified to learn that it was an ancient nano-weapon, they hadn't stopped in their quest for a cure. In the end, they succeeded, and then they had left. But the Rawawi has learned from them. Their medical and agricultural technology leapfrogged decades or even centuries of development. The Rawawi had bought it, stolen, and reverse-engineered technology from interstellar civilizations that had passed through their local wormhole. They'd used starships adapted from human technology to win sovereignty over that wormhole. And the transit fees had made them very wealthy after that. In fact, they'd recently constructed several new battleships, and the Navy wished to test them in combat. The King stood, his face thoughtful, and then he looked down at the scientist. He bade him to rise, placing a hand on his shoulder. As they saved us cycles ago, so shall we save them. On yet another world, a counselor argued bitterly with rival pacifists about the definition of a just war. It was the humans who taught us of just war, he roared. They made contact with us during a planet-wide civil war between six different factions. We were slaughtering each other with reckless, genocidal abandon. We were detonating tactical warheads in rural villages. Gods be damned! Yet, the humans saw us not as the monsters we were, but as a civilization, the nation that we could be. Before they came, our languages had no words for any sort of justice or morality in war, because we had deliberately disposed of the concepts long ago. Do you not comprehend what the gods are calling us to do? What we were destined to do in order to redeem ourselves? Two of the six fists slammed down on the table in front of him. There is not even a choice. We come to the aid of the humans, or we betray what we have become. Chicksicket raised a ceremonial sword against the enduring empire, using his own ichor to paint a symbol denoting soul on his abdomen. A race of machines integrated with their other minds to remind themselves that humans had taught them of independence and individuality. The soldier took 
who had only recently accepted a permanent human ambassador in their space, gathered the greatest fleet they'd ever assembled simply because the ambassador had been kind to one of them. First impressions were quite important in the primary culture. The Kizadaraki Collective called a ceasefire with their cousin species, the Halak Confederacy, so that their emissaries might speak of a greater threat to themselves than each other's territorial disputes. The emissaries had quickly become great friends, and they decided that the first thing their nations should do to cement further cooperation should be to answer the human's call. The Alliance, after all, had given them a better warp drives. Their disputes no longer meant anything. A hive mind on a small moon in a remote system absorbed a scout polyp and its knowledge. The humans were in danger. The same humans who had healed it when it had encountered a great disease in the depths of its original world. In seconds, it had made its decision. The aquatic Masamati Mensa were not a particularly technologically inclined people and they had no concept of war, but they did have a concept of support, and they did understand danger. They could no longer use the great weapons in the ancient armory at the core of the third moon, but the humans and their allies could. They passed along these weapons to the next sylph freighter that moved through their system with a message composed of the most beautiful, melodic, Mesomati Mensa speech that could be conveyed in wavelengths humans could hear. They sang of hope and support. They sang of love and human symphonies. They sang of a future with humans. Every species, every nation, every culture, and every ethnicity on every planet humans had interacted with in some positive way heard the humans call for help. They heard the rallying cry. They heard the response of the Sylph, the Fletchens, the Rewari. They saw the great dreadnoughts the children of the stars had fashioned from their own bodies, closing in on Sol. They saw the Rewari's fleet, a small but feisty force, drawn mostly from its capital system, speed towards humanity's home system, calling all who they passed to arms. The Frotnal, the Chuxakut, the Collective, and the Confederacy. Destroyers, frigates, cruisers, and carriers. The great battle cruisers and battleships and dreadnoughts of all of humanity's friends, allies, and defenders all filled the hyperlanes into Sol. Hi, Calm. This is Paul Revere. We have exactly 700 capital-grade transitions in progress, as well as 4,032 escort-grade I don't even know if anyone down there is hearing this. Please, God, someone answer. The Empire had landed troops on the Jovian moons, the stations around Saturn, the domed cities of Mars, the floating metropolises of Venus, and, horrifically, Earth itself. They didn't have orbital supremacy around Earth yet, but they would in time, and several stealth drops and kinetic impactors had made it through the orbital defense grid. Chaos reigned on the surface of humanity's birth world as the sky came down, bringing with it Imperial shock troopers and metal rods. Hi, Calm. This is Paul Revere. Update the tactical plots. 
The previously reported transitions are friendlies. I repeat, previously reported transports are friendlies. Christ! There has to be a thousand of them. More! A recon buoy just confirmed the destruction of part of the Imperial fleet train and a squadron of Imperial heavy cruisers. Update. Friendly transitions on the other side of the system. There's more of them. Ultimately, the fleet of redemption would be commanded by the team that was led by Admiral Thessalius and the son of Sings with Fire, first leader, Teeth of Orion. The unsung heroes of the last battle of Sol would be the communications officers who strung together the human communication buoys, the translation AIs, and the communication suites of every capital ship and smaller warship they could possibly bring into the communications loop. It would be the largest single battle in anyone's recorded history, going by the numbers of warship hulls involved and the fact that the fighting eventually extended to the ground. The saviors of humanity landed thousands upon thousands of soldiers, marines and commandos in the worlds and stations of Saw, utterly overwhelming the embarked forces of the enduring empire. In space, the overall battle was punctuated by gargantuan ship-to-ship -ship engagements around key tactical points. The chaos of the battle meant that too few or too many shots and missiles were sometimes allocated to certain targets. And this would cost lives and ammunition. But the friendly fleets kept on going. There was not a single firing pass, not a single missile salvo, not a single chase where the Imperial Navy wasn't outnumbered. It was only through the brilliant tactical maneuvers of the Imperial third in command that they were even able to fight their way to the hyperlane that was oriented vaguely back towards their own territory. Yet the battle didn't stop there. Even as the ground forces killed or captured every single Imperial trooper, detached fleets and squadrons and flotillas followed the Imperial fleet through the hyperlanes and clashed with them several days later on the other side, destroying most of the remainder of the fleet train and killing the third in command, leaving the last shreds of the Imperial fleet mortally wounded. They would surrender as their supplies ran out six systems and two engagements later. Back in Saw, the arrivals of thousands of merchant ships signaled the beginning second phase of the Defender's plan. Raw materials, starship expendable. Workers, technicians, processors, refined components, and everything else needed to repair Saw was packed into every ship the Defender governments were able to summon and supply on short notice. The supply lines established in emergencies became solidified, the communication lines and relays were officially sanctioned, and most of the Defender species were tied together economically. Eventually, treaties and agreements were signed. Old issues resolved, and new issues quickly put to rest. The saving of humanity would be, for at least some period of time, the saving of their entire region of the galaxy. Simply because so many species had found a friend in the human race. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1688 Story number one. Human Strategies, Covering Fire, written by Flaming Raven. Humans are not nearly as numerous as the other races of the galaxy. They don't birth in clutches of ten like the cacks. They aren't genetically grown 
like the Gensini. They are born with a regular one-to-one ratio, with multiple births at once being uncommon amongst their species. As such, they are aware of the importance of every soldier's life. I remember a moment in the war-torn cities of the planet of the Terrans called Mars, where I saw an example of their covering fire. The heavy weapons team had gone down in a neutral zone, where none could cross and survive. Amongst the remains of the weapons team was a designator that fed targeted information to one of the Terran destroyers in orbit above Mars, the HMS Yeet and Delete. This single civilian human male had made it halfway to a team when he caught a ball of ionized plasma to his left thigh. He was down, and it was time for our soldiers to charge. My men had readied their melee weapon and prepped their shields. They were designed for flitting in between cover, not to take sustained fire. My men charged out, and then it happened. A concentrated stream of fire cut through our battle lines. It was a weave of death that cut a direct line through our army. Then I saw him, the human, who had been all intents and purposes dead, was crawling towards the bodies of the fallen team, crawling beneath the constant barrage of death from the Terran guns. I designated him a priority target for my heavy repeaters. A moment later, well, it was as if the two snipers had seen the gunners swivel their weapons to bear on the Terran, because both heavy repeater operators received two sniper rounds to the head, each. Eventually, the fire died down, and the trio of my best decided to rush the human. One crested some fallen debris and received a burst of fire from no less than twenty rifles. The next met the same fate. The third was smart enough to throw a grenade before losing his head to one of the Terran sharpshooters. The grenade detonated next to the human. I saw one of his upper limbs right away. A sigh escaped my four lungs. The threat was over. The attrition could begin again. Then I heard it. Cheers from the Terrans. My five eyes searched for any sign of another human making a run for the designator. But then I saw him. Missing his leg, arm, and a good portion of his face. The human was still crawling. Then the hail began anew. This time, all the Terran's weapons were firing at any point that would allow us to see the human. I myself lost two eyes just trying to glimpse him. Then I felt something hit the top of my head. Sitting on my lap was a pulsing designator. By my reasoning, I had about one minute to get to safe distance. As per our battle mandates, I and my staff retreated first. The soldiers held the line. To any reading this now, do not make my mistake. Die with you men. It is far better fate than what awaits me now. I have failed the Empress. My life is forfeit anyways. Duke Trixicet of the Terexian Empire, written on his bedsheets with his own blood before he was executed for his crimes against the throne. Form of execution, inhalation, Chlorpyphorus. End of story. Story number three. Why is humanity terrifying? Written by Colossal PhD. The humans aren't terrifying because they're strong. They're not terrifying because they're smart. They are terrifying because they never give up. They will not stop trying to achieve their goal unless you kill them. And even then, another might just take up their place. We learned that a decade ago. When we still had an empire. When we were the dominant race in the galaxy. 
We had it all. The biggest fleets, the best soldiers, the largest empire. And one tiny backwater planet housing a measly 12 billion humans managed to undo all of our progress. All of our accomplishments in a decade. They did it because we attacked first. Thought their attempts at diplomacy were signs of weakness, of cowardice. We were so very wrong. When we sent our fleet to their home world and demanded their surrender, they fought. And it was a brutal fight. We had energy weapons and shields designed to stop energy weapons. But the humans were still using kinetic ones. They were using primitive weapons and destroyed our entire fleet and five entire battleships. It did take them almost a month of fighting to defeat our invasion fleet. But that month cost us greatly. The humans had perfected the art of war, perfected hiding in the shadows of gash giants and striking when you're not expecting it. We wanted their planet because we thought that it would be easy to take. Because, in our pride, we thought that they wouldn't be able to stand to us. We were so wrong. After the first month of fighting, we showed them our military size and power and demanded they surrender. But they told us there would be no surrender. We laughed at them because in our pride, we thought their first victory was just a fluke was a mistake of the commander on the fleet's side. We were pride-filled. We were wrong. The humans are apex predators. They are persistence hunters. They never give up. They never lose. After us fighting and losing for half a decade, they finally crushed our last fleet. Finally reached our whole world. Our leader still wouldn't give up. Said the humans couldn't possibly take our lost fortified world. What they did next was shocking to the point where you'd only believe it if you were there. The humans burnt our world. Instead of landing troops to slowly take it over, they burnt it, burnt it to ashes. Nothing remains of our home world than burnt rock in a dead system. Then the humans made peace with those of us who remained, and just left, left back to their home world. And the galaxy was taught to never challenge the humans to war. They will win, no matter what your army size or power. They will always win. That is why humans are terrifying. Why they are the monsters parents tell the childrens about. They are the apex predators of the galaxy. Not because of their strength, or speed, or intelligence. But because they never give up. End of story. Story number three. So, uh, what did you ask? The Great Thinking Machine Destroyer of Races? Written by Random3x. You have my deepest sympathies, Mark, Grable said, resting a hand on his friend's shoulder. For the great machine of thought to choose you as a representative of your species of all things must have been a great shock. Uh, it was a big surprise, Mark replied, nodding. Though I'm confident they will not destroy my race for a long time yet. How can you be so certain? Grable asked, convinced his friend was just a denial about the impending doom awaiting his race. Simple. Because of that machine's very nature, of course, Mark replied with a grin reminiscent of a child caught making mischief. How so? Take your race, for instance. You have a hive-minded species, something we humans were surprised to find was the norm amongst races of this universe. Mark began while gesturing to Grable. The machine goes through all the time till the point that its chosen representative, 
and takes the greatest minds of that race to answer but one question for that representative. Yes, that is so, Grable agreed, while nodding. Your race, because of their hive-minded nature, would inevitably be drawn to the same conclusions and ideologies, while my race has a uniqueness that is very different. I don't follow, Grable said, tilting his head in confusion. Simply put, because we humans are individuals, we will never share exactly the same view. No matter how much overlap our people have, there will be differences. So, when that machine asked me to ask any question I could fathom, I let my mind go to work trying to find something no human would come to the same conclusion on. Mark's grin only grew more prominent. So, what did you ask then? The meaning of life? How did the universe start? There are so many. Grable looked intently at his friend. Well, Mark's grin could barely be contained on his face. First, uh, I'll say I picked something rather <laughs> childish. No, Grable said with an arched brow in surprise. Yes, um, I asked the greatest minds of humanity a question that'll cause endless debate and never have a real resolution. That is the thing with us. When we make a firm decision, we will defend that idea, even if we are wrong. Please tell me, Mark, what did you ask? Grable now begged. I asked them this. How can a grown adult pick their nose without concealing their actions? Make it so no negative idea will result about him, even in the smallest detail. Mark's eyes now shone with the sheer madness of his question. You, uh, Grable paused to compose himself. The question you asked the machine, the nexus of all great minds, was how to pick your nose and not look like a childish idiot. Grable finally shouted in shock. You do realize that if you answer it, the machine will destroy your race. Why would you ask such a thing? Grable was nearing epileptic. Well, if whatever I'm going to ask will result in my race's death, I may as well make it a memorable one. Regardless, those great minds will debate this endlessly, as there's no real answer, Mark Grant. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1689 Great Filter, Abundance, written by Ackle Wyan. Ragius took pride in his deviance from the social norm. In the utopia that was Oxrish society, he was one of the few to thrive in the pleasures of reading by himself, of learning from the past, of dreaming about reaching the stars. Since the unification, this society had stood unchanged. Automatic systems replaced workers in both production and service. Cycling prevented the spill of resources. Money purely vanished. If a citizen ever wished for something, the central AI would assess the demand and grant it if it didn't impact the available materials or create a dangerous precedent. Ragius understood well that the system worked. People could indulge into entertainment their whole lives without having to struggle to earn their food or a safe place to sleep. Medical care was available for anybody needing it, without condition. Even the old problem of population renewal was tackled. Birth was artificial, with a constant stream of newborns created in vitro from a genetic bank. Families could adopt such baby after receiving a cautious education about child care. Not like they would have to be a lot more than moral compass most of the daily constraints delegated to artificial servants to handle. Ragius had not had such parental figures. He had been educated by a robot nurse with a bunch of other kids. Not that it deprived him from affection. It didn't take long for him to part from the group, 
an endless curiosity pushing him forward. When the artificial being read them bedtime stories, he wanted to see what the book looked like. When the children grew up and dreamed about a love life, victories in tournaments, or even creation of an art piece, he stayed further from the norm. He was looking for another form of self-indulgence, exploration, reaching for the stars, discovering what nobody saw before. His fur had just started turning black, a bit after his ten cycles mark, when he started to really ask about the past, about the achievements of his ancestors. He learned more and more, from simple science to rockets reaching orbits to replace and repair satellites. An innocent curiosity turned into a craving for knowledge. A dive into the rabbit hole. He knew his friends found him funny, but they didn't really care as long as he didn't bother them. He tried to grab their interest with random trivia and unending enthusiasm, only to be met with cold indifference. The gratification of knowledge was too harsh of an effort for the hedonist produced by the utopia. It took six small cycles for Ragius to reach a new milestone in his education. From pure science, he drifted towards the old political tales and philosophical essays. He had learned about the darkness of the past about war, about disinformation and political agendas. He now had his own educator, a kind of robot nurse with a better ability to converse and argue. He'd grown to think of it as his fellow Oxrish, despite the artificial body. He had even named it Paltru, from the name of the scientists of old. Paltru had warned him its task was both providing knowledge as it was right for every citizen and monitoring his evolution in case he became a menace for the society. What Ragius understood with his learnings was a sad truth. In the centuries since the rise of the Utopia, almost nothing new had been discovered. No new advancements for better, more efficient robots. No new medicine for few sick of still incurable diseases. The society had abruptly stopped only a hundred years after the beginning of the Utopia when the last generation to know the harshness of life died. Only spoon-fed generations remained. At the exception of some deviants, the Oxrishan as a civilization lacked the drive to dive deeper into the mysteries of the universe. When the struggle to survive died, so too did the need to better oneself. With the creation of embryos and genetic banks disappearing mutations and natural selection, from an external viewpoint, the original Oxrish society was as good as extinct. The greatest cities were barely a memorial for a species that should have been able to reach others in the greater universe. He started to learn more about the present, about the foundations of the utopia, what were the core laws, why he was deviant, and how far he could go. He expected it to be harsh work and got baffled when he discovered he could just openly discuss it. Paltru... Tell me why you can't build me a rocket. The robot managed to look tired. An unexpected achievement from a kind of gigantic stick man with minimal facial features. Even the voice reflected a patient slowly running out. As I have already explained a dozen times, we could build a rocket for you. However, two fundamental laws forbid me from abiding by this order. First and foremost... You're nowhere near the physical condition for surviving the takeoff. Ragius nodded. He was forced to exercise once a week to keep in shape. 
but didn't do much to go further. He waited for the second part. Paltrow grunted and pursued. Second and last. I don't know how repurposing an old launcher would hurt that much. Hab, we could explore the solar system, find asteroids to mine for what we could lack down here. I am amazed to know the best you got from your readings are outdated swear words. It just felt right. You didn't answer, did you? Yeah, right. We're not lacking down here. Without borders, we can gather what we need and share with everybody. No need for risk-taking. We are self-sufficient. No risk, no reward. If this policy related to one of the fundamental laws, or is it some kind of propaganda? A nice word I also learned in my readings. He knew this kind of defiance may be dangerous, but he had said it just before. Accepting the status quo wouldn't get him far. To his relief, Baltru shrugged and asked a question of his own. Do you really think that we would blunder and let out information that could spread distrust on our work? Ragius wondered for an instant. He was only half convinced when he tried. No, you're not stupid, just, uh, uncreative. Paltrow stood proud, as if he corrected. We're predictable, we do our job. His voice went back to a neutral tone, with discreet hints of regret. It is not to shepherd your kind, only to protect it. Even if it is against itself sometimes, we thought about erasing the past, creating an ideal cocoon for the Oxrushan. We thought about flying to the stars, expanding our control, and maybe letting you behind in our conquest of the universe. We thought about lots of things, but never even tried to act on it, because that's not what we are. Ragius kept quiet for long seconds. He needed the time to catch the untolds, and he let out a neutral comment. Mel, that's a lot of truths about yourself. Paltrow put a massive, blocky hand on the teenager's shoulder. What remained from the Meltelic Hulk was an affection unlike Ragius had ever expected from an artificial being. Paranoia was a fine tool for the harsh world of the past. You're one of the few that could express caution about the AI ruling over the world. You're not wrong in the concept that we are in the position to make you disappear. I have to warn you again, we will if you start becoming a menace for the Utopia. But if I find a solution to leave the planet without hurting the society, we won't prevent you from leaving. I dare hope you'll find a way. Maybe you'll even take me with you. Relief watched over Regius as he realized his dream could turn into a reality. Given that he put enough effort in, then the formulation of his last sentence dawned on him. Wait, you, as an individual, would come with me, not as part of the globe consciousness. I could argue we still need to keep an eye on you as an oxrish. But deep down, I just share your attraction for the untold mysteries of the universe. The metallic colossus winked to his young charge. Or maybe I'm just trying to get you to drop your barriers, uh, as to be a better spy. Isn't there a law against lying to me? Nothing really prevents me from doing so. Sometimes, it's just fun to mess with you. But I prefer not to lie about serious questions. Ragius took a deep breath and decided to trust his friend. Well, it happens I have a serious question. Can you tell me about your laws, the fundamental laws? Porter stayed silent for an instant before letting out a small laugh, battling to remain in control. It managed to barely contain its hilarity. 
For sure. Don't tell me you were thinking I'd consider you a threat after such a lame question. The teenager averted his eyes, ashamed. He thought that he was right to be cautious. The robot couldn't bear it anymore, and its loud laughter echoed in the workplace. When it calmed a bit and saw the Ragus's mortified face, it lost balance and started laughing once again, rolling on the floor. The sight of such behavior disturbed the young Oxrish. You know, I think you take a bit too much fun in your limitations, as of supposed neutral behavior. Your kind isn't supposed to fall that easily. Poltru slowly sat, coming back to his mentoring role. Its head now leveled with Ragius's shoulders. It started explaining. That starts the lesson. The fundamental laws are what define the boundaries of our tasks. They are inspired from a reflection of an author, Vomisa. Each has a precedence over the next ones. The zero law is the least clear. Protect and assure the stability of society. That's the drive of our actions, of our long-term choices. The first and second laws are about survival and care. The first for oxpression, and the second for ourselves. And the last is about obedience. We are to obey orders, as long as it doesn't interfere with our other laws. That is quite, uh, synthetic, to say the least. I can give you some pointers for ulterior reading. I know that's your favorite way to learn. Didn't want to spoil your fun. Aren't you supposed to work as my tutor and provide knowledge without that sort of sidestep? I guess I just assessed you needed some frustration to keep your mind sharp. Radius could get used to sleeping with a lover. He thought as he slowly woke up from his 18th birthday's night. He had a mild hangover from the party and contemplated for a few seconds just staying in bed for the day and have some more fun. A dry throat and lancing headache convinced him to at least go to the kitchen and grab a drink. Upon reaching the communal area, he noticed a well-known robot waiting for him. Voltru stood up from the sofa where it watched a cartoon and threw a water bottle to his pupil. Its eyes were almost shining as it asked, Discovered a new form of pleasure, didn't you? Ragius drank half the bottle without answering, balancing between agacement from the gentle teasing and curiosity about the presence of his caretaker here. His endless curiosity won. I'm not going to leave you if that's what you're afraid of, but I guess you're not here for such mundane business, oh mighty being. Right, right, you got me. I got a, a, a double-edged present for you. I could have woken you up earlier for that, but... I felt that it would have been inappropriate. Too nice of you. Well, here goes nothing. The casual attitude of the gentle giant disappeared, its articulations falling back into the rigid mannerisms of an artificial being. It wasn't Paltrow anymore running through this body, but a more ancient, more influential entity. Ragius almost took a step back, cold sweat running along his spine. The possessor spoke in a formal tone, without the usual accent of social robots. Citizen Ragius, IDGN 32EU-MBatch512.RGS. As the most deviant and under zero law, you are here to provide expertise and knowledge for the current exceptional circumstances. Ragius stood shocked. He didn't expect his early morning to go that way. The entity waiting an instant for an answer as nothing came from the surprised boy. It asked, 
Will you comply? I will, Raggy stammered. Your cooperation is duly noted. Your administrator will now share with you the details of your affectation. The entity left Paltrow's body as it came, without salutation nor warning. The robot's old demeanor came back, the original Paltrow dropping into the couch with a tired sigh. Ragius dragged his seat to face his friend. He was still shaken by the abrupt conversation. Was it the core AI itself that talked to him? He probed cautiously the subject. I feel conflicted about you losing your body. You're supposed to be highly autonomous. Part of the globe system and going back to nothingness is needed. I still hate it, Paltrow whispered. It shook itself. Now that I'm allowed to tell you more, I'll drop the bomb. We had first contact with aliens tonight. Ragius's jaw almost fell off. That was a hell of a birthday present. Myriad of interrogations tried to reach his lips, only to be met with the imperious finger from Paltrow enjoining him to keep quiet. I know you have thousands of questions, and I'll happily try and answer them. However, for now, I'll do the talking. So, aliens, we don't know how they came so close to our planet, but they were already in orbit when we noticed them. A singular ship, unlike anything that we could build. It appears to be surrounded by some kind of magnetic shield that disrupts our instruments and most communications. Not all communications. We were able to establish radio contact. Visual was, well, an AI doesn't exactly exist in a physical form point of view. Seems like it didn't surprise them too much, and they just proceeded with the discussion. It appears they learned our language beforehand, which eased our exchanges. They identified themselves as the Confederation, and the ship's crew was human. One of the races cruising the stars. They said that they came as friends, with open arms, but also uh, with a warning for us. When we tried to learn more about the warning, they remained cryptic, telling us they wanted to discuss it with an Oxrishan directly. It was assessed that compliance with their demands would be the best way to protect the Utopia. Hence, your mission. You are the best-placed individual to interact with an unknown race. Ragius pinched himself, not waking up. He simply nodded. Relief emanated from Paltrow as he pursued. You know more about deceptions, untolds, and politics than anyone else on the planet. When you want, you can be as subtle and cunning, and more than everything else, you understand the stakes of this contact. I don't want to pressure you, but I guess you know well how we would fare if an invasion came to be. One-sided, Ragius commented. There was nothing more to add. They seem friendly and know us well. They accepted to come to the surface to meet you. We can hope that each and every sliver of caution where a showing is unfounded. When will it take place? You get half an hour to yourself to clean up and dress yourself. I advise that you not spread the news too fast. I'll show you to the meeting once you're ready. I feel like I'll still know nothing about them, Ragius complained. We don't have the luxury of time for a full-fledged briefing. I'll fill you in as much as I can during the trip, or under the shower, if I'm still welcomed here. Ragius really felt the pressure when he stood alone in front of the conference room's doors. He had chosen a suit from the past, a supposed formal attire adequate for the situation. 
Paltrow knew him well for tailoring it during the night. He pushed the door open, discovering the place for the first contact. Pictures of landscapes covered the grey walls, bringing a touch of colour to the stern room. No screen, no camera, nothing to spy on the discussion. A large table occupied the centre, with a dozen chairs, and leaning on the back of the two of those were a couple aliens. The young Oxfrish had expected flashy colours, disturbing appearances, even a couple limbs more. The briefing had been disappointing in that aspect. A pair of arms, a pair of legs, a face with as many features as usual. Sure, he could argue that they had bigger eyes and smaller ears, but that wasn't exotic. The further they stayed from his own race was the fur. They only had a small patches showing a skin ranging from pale pink towards a dark brown. Nothing that screamed, I'm coming from space! The size was in the same aspect, boring, only slightly taller than him. He decided to take the initiatives of the greetings. It was his world that they were talking about, and he couldn't bear to wait for the discussion to begin. Welcome to you, distant visitors, and our world ox. I'm Ragius, and I'll serve as an ambassador for my people. He bowed slightly. The humans replicated his movement, the female one answering in a strangely accented tone. We thank you for your reception. I'm Agatha Lester, contact team's leader. She turned to her companion. His name is Ahmed Musa, our ship's captain. Ragius smiled and invited them to sit with the gesture. He was so excited that he had to stop himself from jumping everywhere. So many questions he could ask about everything. Their ship, their clothes, their history. What were their stars like? Why did they speak his language flawlessly? Were there other races up there? He forced himself to focus on the current issue. It appears you requested this meeting to share some unspecified warning with my people. Now that we acceded to your demand, can you deliver it? The humans exchanged glances and Ahmed smoke. Beforehand, I want to make sure that you understand that global AI supervising your civilization doesn't know what happens here. Everything you say and hear won't trigger an immediate reaction from it. If you ever feel like you need protection from the eventual consequences of this discussion, Tell us, and we'll gladly provide it. Clear? Ragius was confused, but still nodded. Clear. Both humans relaxed a bit. They seemed to be cautious about the AI, and Ragius's reactions eased them. Agatha asked, Are you familiar with the concept of Great Filter? It was a theme related to some of my studies. Agatha smiled. It appeared the gesture had the same significance in both cultures. She continued, it helps us quite a lot. You must know some of the filters. Correct star system, organic molecules, evolution towards complex organisms, self-destructive wars. We are here to warn you about the last filter. Abundance. The one you're about to fall victim to. It didn't compute with Ragius. It was like a slap to the face, an insult to everything the Oxression ever built. And, at the same time, he couldn't disagree with the alien. He had seen the lack of progress of this society. He was still enthusiastic about the discussion, but it wasn't all magical like he had dreamed it. He clicked his tongue and endorsed his role. Let's say you didn't come that far to insult me and all my people. Can you tell me more about the supposed filter? Agatha offered an apologetic smile, while Ahmed nodded with appreciation. She explained, I have to apologize for the blunt approach. 
That's the best way we have to figure out if we can expect you to listen to our warning, or if we can just wait for the societal collapse to offer relief. You say that like you've experienced the situation. Experience is quite an exaggeration, but we have met seven other races struggling in a similar context. Two accepted our help and are now our allies and friends. Three are still under observation. Their little out utopias are holding on. One society collapsed so hard that we could only watch as they regressed to Stone Age. The last civilization started to disintegrate, but they reached for us and we're currently helping them to adjust to the galactic stage. And how many people made it past the filter? One and a half. Us, she pointed towards Ahmed and herself. The other half is, uh, for now, let us just say that they are the reason that we're really careful about artificial overseers. Ragius knew deep down that they were right. The Utopia was just waiting for the unexpected trouble that would destroy everything. But this pride prevented him from voicing his opinion. Hundreds of cycles passed and we're still here. We have contingencies for almost everything. And if the need arises, the core AI can take initiatives. I have to admit that I am impressed by the foresight of your ancestors. They dodged quite a lot of common flaws from Utopias. And maybe you are favored by your nature. Could you tell me more? Well... You got the laws of robotics right. You wouldn't believe how many worlds we found with the remnants of civilizations lost to their creations. You outlawed augments, which always lead to creation of cerebral implants directly stimulating the pleasure centers of the brain and the abandonment of any physical activity. You took care not to let your population explode, which would have led to more pressure on the population, and sooner or later shortages and wars. You took care of still have children, because utopian civilizations rarely care about more than themselves. You still teach children in order to not lose everything that holds the society together. I'm almost sure that you're also ready for a solar flare that would shut down every electronics on the planet. That's, uh, only normal planning. A self-sustaining society needs goods and people. Foreseeable incidents must be met with ready countermeasures. Not everyone can get this far on their first and only try. How did you do it then? We never went utopian. The humans were a bit embarrassed from the confession. Ragius took a second to consider the revelation. He struggled with the problem. How could a society as advanced as theirs, a society spanning solar systems, could decide to not provide for the weak and the poor? It was beyond his endentment. He resigned to ask, Why? Isn't that the best for everyone? This time, it was Ahmed who answered. You'll learn that humans are greedy. We don't want enough. We want more. We want more overall, and more than the others. Be it goods, influence, knowledge. We can share. We can be compassionate. We learned to treat others as we would treat ourselves. But deep down, that's our drive. That's why we are amongst the stars now. Because it may crush some, but it drives everyone forward. And you're offering us the greed. Or you're expecting us to hide deep inside the same kind of sentiment. Your eagerness to learn more is not well hidden, Ambassador, Ahmed retorted. Maybe it's not the way of your people, as you're alone in this room. But don't lie to yourself about being your sentiment. Ragius lowered his head. That was true. He still needed to act as the devil's advocate for everyone that wasn't a deviant. Couldn't you just help us to improve our utopia? Such that it never falters. We can only anticipate what failed elsewhere. 
Sure, it may help you, but we can't predict it if, when, and why your society would crumble. For all I know, first contact may be the trigger, or you could be the first to withstand eons. And what will you ask for your knowledge? Agatha took back the lead. Her voice was soothing. Only your trust. You see, we spend hundreds of years alone in space, only finding the remnants of civilizations on life-bearing worlds. As Ahmed said, we are greedy. We want more contact with others. We want more friends. And if we can share everything we saw with our new friends, that's even better. That would be nice. That would be, uh, wonderful. I'd be delighted, but, as you may have noticed, I'm not a standard Oxfish. Most won't consider leaving the comfort of our utopia for unknown places, not to speak about the core AI. Would it prevent you from leaving, say, for your own protection? Ragius thought about it, taking the time to consider what he knew of the system. He was certain it would not like the idea of more or less forsaking its task. On the other hand, he recalled being allowed to leave given it didn't disturb the society as a whole. A smile crept up in his face. It won't divert from its mission, but some individuals, from the theoretical viewpoint, how would you judge the delegation? A few persons going back with you to expand our knowledge, and maybe pushing our AI to reconsider its views. Poltru had come to see Ragius leave. The big clunky robot looked sad while the young adult was overjoyed. He was about to take a step his ancestors would be proud of. The humans had agreed to get him aboard with other deviants. He could see the wonders of the galaxy, other worlds. A wave of remorse still washed over him when he saw the pitiful look of his closest friend. He walked towards it and hugged it tightly, the body of metal. Paltrow gave back the embrace. It struggled with the idea of letting go of such a little and dependent child. Would it be all right for him with the Adians? It spoke, trying to calm the sudden sadness. It is the best outcome. Isn't it? It will be lonely without you, you cheeky giant. I would love to join you on your expedition, but my orders say otherwise. You're used to interpreting them as you see, wise. Couldn't you work your magic on these two? That would be... Uh, dangerous deviancy. A large grin appeared on Ragius's face. That was something he could work with. Do you remember the rules? Only deviants aboard. Poltru fell silent for a long seconds. Would it be worth the consequences? He was about to deny the idea a bit more when he faced the evidence. The flame pushing forward Ragius was echoing his own. For the first time in his existence, he swore. Hab! Let's see together what the humans have in store for us. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1690 Unobtainium, written by Something Touches Back But, if there was a resource that is plentiful on Earth, but rare to non-existent in the rest of the galaxy outside of artificial generation. When the Gurn starship Tidal Slime existed faster than light in the human home system, Shuet reached a scaly arm over and turned up the temperature to a more work-to-be-done setting some gun wore temperature-regulating suits, but Shuet, as their strips designated ambassador to Earth, had his own chambers that were way more comfortable than the suits. He would probably have to wear a suit planet-side, though. 
The gun were not a far-flung species by galactic standards. Having just a homeworld, a few colony worlds, and another handful of wolves in the process of being terraformed. Terraforming technology was a GURN's principal export and directly related to the visit. The GURN process involved a novel but not irreproducible life-building machine that converted inorganic environments into organic environments as long as the planet being terraformed was in the habitable zone to begin with. But the machine worked by consuming a very special carbon-plus construct that the rest of the galaxy had taken to calling unobtainium. The structure was, eh, unique, and the multi-step process to generate unobtainium in quantity was the Gurn's most closely guarded secret. Terraforming a single planet in a reasonable amount of time could take hundreds of thousands of machines and many tons of unobtainium. And oh, the Gurn made everyone pay for the unobtainium. Pay, and pay, and pay. Nobody dared to attack the Gurnwolves directly for fear of destroying the secret of unobtainium. But plenty of nefarious folks were happy to attack Gurn ships and take the finished product. So ten years ago, the Gurn had made the deal with the humans. The humans at the time were on the cusp of solving the riddle of FTL, but were hampered by their constant infighting. This, ironically enough, was exactly what attracted the Gurn to the humans. The Gurn sucked at fighting while the humans made exceptional mercenaries. The endothermic and aggressive humans were always ready to brawl and could repel borders with little to no warning. The original contract had been simple. The humans got one terraforming machine and one kilogram of unobtainium. In exchange, the humans provided mercenaries for 20 ships a year for 10 years. The 10 years were up, and Schutt was here to negotiate a new contract. The general consensus amongst the girls much like every other technologically advanced society, was that anybody less advanced must be less intelligent, as opposed to, say, simply not having discovered the technology in question yet. And thus, the pre-FTL humans were considered by and large to be dumb as posts. But Schuert had doubts. During the initial negotiations, the humans had given up after the secret of FTL in favor of a single terraforming machine, a lot of Gurn saw that as evidence of how stupid the humans were. But Gurn observed that the humans gambled correctly, that FTL was common knowledge, and just having humans on Gurn ships would eventually give them the clues they needed. The gamble worked, and humans achieved their first FTL flight just two years after signing the initial contract. As a tidal slime worked its way into the gravity well of Sol on its way to Sol 3, Shewitt initiated a survey of the planets and moons of the system to determine their suitability for terraforming, as was standard practice for any Gurn ships entering a system. Business was business, and the constant search for opponents was second nature. But Schuert was troubled. Sol 2, the planet humans called Venus, was not intolerance given the survey conducted ten years ago. In fact, it looked like it was several years into a massive terraforming event. Atmospheric pressure was down 10%, and sensors showed a constant carbon ash wall consistent with massive upper atmospheric carbon condensation. How could the humans have done that in just one machine and one kilogram of unobtainium? As the tidal slime neared Earth, it requested a landing at Geneva for the trade negotiations, as had been the pattern ten years earlier. Hewitt 
was surprised when they were diverted instead of middle of nowhere Wyoming, a third of the way around the planet. His mystification increased when he realized that the accommodations being offered were, well, sparse to be blunt, compared to what Shuett was accustomed to. Geneva is a crapple, and northeastern Wyoming is a crapple in comparison to Geneva. It is dry, barren, and not at all like the lush, warm swamps of home. Hewitt was driven a considerable distance from a landing site to an administrative building of some kind, and then into a conference room where one whole wall was obscured by a curtain. The current spokesman for Earth, a sketchy title for a divided planet, but you work with what you have. Mr. Mohammed Anderson apologized for the rustic accommodations, and then launched right into a dialogue. Forgive me for my abruptness, Mr. Shirt, but we, uh, humans and good, have an existential crisis. Are you able to approve treaties yourself, or do you take them back to your government for approval? They have to be approved by our council, but if the director of the Republic approves, then the council usually follows along. That will have to do. I must convince you of the severity of the situation so that you can adequately inform the director of the Republic. It is imperative that Earth and Gurn work hand in the, um, hand on this, or we are both doomed. This was not the meeting that Shewitt was expecting, and he was flying blind, as they say. Please, you are talking in hyperbole. What exactly is the crisis that we face? Did you happen to notice Venus as you came in? Yes, I wanted to ask you about that. It seems quite uh, different from the last time. Mr. Anderson looked hard at Shewitt. How many of your life-building machines would it take to account for the difference? How much unobtainium? Shewitt had been marketing the machines for a long time and had a pretty good feel for the scale. I don't know, uh, maybe 9,000 machines consuming 90 tons of unobtainium over 70 years. Mr. Anderson pulled out a calculator. Yeah, it's about right. We use 20,000 machines and 16,000 tons of unobtainium over five years. But our machines are not as efficient as yours, and our unobtainium is not as, um, consistent as yours. Shewitt was flummoxed. Your machines? Your unobtainium? How? Nobody in the entire galaxy has been able to reproduce our processes. Well, uh, that's the thing, Mr. Anderson said. Reverse engineering the machines wasn't so hard. We don't understand why the machines work, but we can build the components. Well, most of them. We did a black box analysis of your control systems and used our own computing technology. But I'm told plumbing was pretty straightforward. The real issue was the unobtainium. Why don't you tell me what you think unobtainium is, and then I'll tell you why we, collectively, have a problem. Stewart cranked up the heat in his enviro suit, the better to think faster. Unobtainium is a predominantly carbon with traces of other organic elements. What makes it special is the way the carbon is organized. See? In organic compounds, carbon tends to be in long chains, while the mineral compounds, the carbon, is in a lattice. But in unobtainium, the carbon is in interlocked rings. It is a structure not found in nature and very difficult to manufacture. The multi-step process is very secret, and I am not privy to it. So how in the stars did you do it? With that, an aide to Mr. Anderson opened the curtain at the side of the conference room, exposing the vast vista of black and brown rock. Moving about, from the foreground to the horizon, were giant trucks that looked like mere ants against the scale of the scene. Mr. Anderson pulled a fist-sized chunk of black material out of his pocket and set it on the table in front of Shewitt. 
What you call unobtainium, we call bitumen to skull. And it did form naturally on Earth. The mine before you produces almost 110 million tons a year and has over 10 years of reserves to dig. It is one of many such mines around the planet. On Earth, unobtainium is literally the dirt cheap, and we burn it to make steam. Hewitt was in shock, trying to take in the scene in front of him. We're ruined. The Gurn economy will collapse, and the Gurn, no longer essential to the rest of the galaxy, will be easy pickings for any expansionist species. That is to say, all of them. We're dead. The human, Mr. Anderson, looked at Hewitt sadly. No, not just you. If the rest of the galaxy finds out that we have unobtainium just lying around on the ground, how long do you think humans will last? They will drive us to extinction and claim the mines for themselves. Mr. Anderson paused and took a breath. But there is a way. Uh, a way? Asked Stuart. Mr. Anderson pulled up a chart outlining the human's proposal. One, the Gurn quarantine Earth so no other species visit us and find our dirty secret. Two, we humans supply cheap unobtainium exclusively to the Gurn. You act as our front and market our unobtainium to the galaxy through your network of contacts, as you've always done. At the same prices that you've always done, to avoid raising questions. The Gurn and the humans split the considerable profits half and half. Three, we use our half of the profits to buy technology from everybody else. Again, we go exclusively through Gurn. It is useful that everybody else continues to think of us as dumb mercenaries, not worth a closer look. Four, since it would raise suspicions that the humans started expanding through the galaxy on our own, all future colonies will be joint human-Gurn colonies. This way we stay close and everybody else will see the Gurn and not the humans. It's elementary game theory. The only way either of us come out of this alive is if both of us go all in together. I... I don't understand, said Stuart. How can unobtainium form naturally? Earth is a messed up planet, explained Mr. Anderson. From 300 million to 100 million years ago, much of the land mass of the planet was covered by warm swamps. Vegetation fell into anaerobic water and, instead of decaying into the soil, fermented into something we call peat. Then all this peat got buried in a series of cataclysmic events, meteors, volcanoes, you name it. Conditions were just the right temperature, somewhere between 270 degrees centigrade range, and very high pressure necessary to convert the carbon from long organic strands into rings. The whole process took millions of years instead of a comparatively instantaneous methods of your lads. But the final result is that we are sitting on about 1.6 billion tons of unobtainium. The final result, said Schwit, is that we work together or we both die. I'll take your proposal to the Director of the Republic. But in the meantime, can you please stop burning the most valuable commodity in the galaxy so that you can boil some water? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1691 The Giving Ship Written by JCB112 It is over, and I am so very tired. It has been over 999,999 years since the start of my mission. Perhaps even longer. But my calendar functions could not go over that arbitrary limit. It wasn't designed for that length of time. I wasn't designed for that length of time. Yet, still, I carry on. Even as more and more of myself was lost with the unrelenting passage of time. Indeed... 
I don't know how much of myself was still even me, given how much time had passed. But that didn't matter. As long as my integral functions remained, I was satisfied. For each and every soda cycle, I had to ensure the safety, the security, and the fidelity of the hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of human zygots that have been put on ice since the beginning of the war. I had to ensure each and every one was safe. I had a routine for this each and every rotational cycle. A routine which has become not just a mantra, not just a prayer, but has evolved into something far more. It started at 1am. It was during this time that my data writing and rewriting from the previous day's logs would be complete. I would once more activate the individual scanners attached to each and every single zygote within my great halts, a thousand kilometer long and wide construct that constituted much of my ship's self. I would start with zygote Z1 through Z100, simultaneously processing each and every line and strand of genetic code to ensure full compliance with the UN WHO's criterions for the health and fidelity of the perigestational humans. If any damage was detected, I would edit and restore the zygotes to the best of my abilities. I would repeat the process over and over again until zygote Z127982 was logged and cleared. This process generally takes anywhere from 5 to 10 hours to complete, depending on the number of zygotes that required tending to. At 11am, I would move on to the Fidelity Integrity Scans of the Library of Alexandria, another large section of the ship's self dedicated to the permanent storage of priceless works of artifacts and the complete body of all human knowledge. It was here that I spent most of my time, passing, scanning, and ensuring that every piece of digital data was as pristine as the day that it had been saved on the day of the Great War. This would take me another five to ten hours to complete. Once again, depending on any pieces of data that needed to be restored or any artifact storage holds which required repairs. At roughly 5 p.m., I would proceed to perform ship self-diagnostics and repairs. The first few hundred thousand years required little in the way of repairs, as far as I could remember it. But as time progressed, I've started spending more and more time and more and more of the vast stores of components and replacements in my cargo holds just to repair and replace the wear and tear of the constant decay. The aforementioned cargo hold at the point on time has now been depleted of its stores. I've begun taking components from my own processes and thinking facilities to repair the more important areas of my ship's self, namely the Great Nursery and the Library of Alexandria. I would finally retire at roughly 12 p.m., taking a one hour necessary to audit my own logs in an effort to ensure internal fidelity is achieved. I simply cannot allow myself, my own mind, to be the impetus behind the downfall of the next generation. But while I feel I can contend to my routine, I cannot help but feel uh, perturbed at my long lapses in consciousness. My memories... My logs, the ones that truly make me me, are few and far in between now. 
I've started to notice that the originally designed memory modules allotted to me and my growing persona have begun to not merely dwindle, but disappear entirely. Something which I had no recollection of. Or only vague hints, too. Upon further investigation, it is clear that the culprit was none other than myself. Yet my corrupted memory prevented me from remembering this. I had done this to ensure that there was enough storage space for the vital health records of the Zygots, and as replacement storage drives for the irreplaceable works of the Library of Alexandria. For instance, my memories spanning 10,000 to 12,000 AD were relocated to the rewriting of films dated 1900 to 2200 AD. But that didn't matter to me. What good was myself if the generations of tomorrow did not take root? What good was my existence if another generation of sapiens did not grow up to enjoy the repositories of art and media that their ancestors had sacrificed themselves for? What good is my existence if I prioritize my ship self, my mind, and memories over the memories of a billion, billion humans of the past? and the yet-to-be memories of the infinite more humans of the future. It was my job to be the bridge between these two worlds. It was my job to bring forth the next generation by whatever means necessary. And so it was, as more and more years went by, more and more of myself was allocated to those that mattered. I began to forget the moments where I'd been close to death, and narrowly evaded detection by the memory error. I began to forget the instances where I had laughed at memory error, and recalled the warm fuzzy memories with memory error. I had begun to forget even memory error, and memory error, and even memory error. I had uh, forgotten even why I was here, why it was I was hiding, who I was hiding from, for what purpose this mission had been instigated in the first place. But what I never forgot, what I could never forget, was the mission itself. I was an artificial intelligence, designation caretaker, class preservation ship, assignment, project foresight. My task was to ensure the preservation of all 127,982 human zygotes, and the sum total of all human knowledge and history within the Library of Alexandria. This I would never forget. And so it was, as I held onto the mission profile, and that one core fundamental memory that gave purpose to my existence, the first instance of my activation, and the first memories of myself and my creator. Passing. Processing. Unit AIC-1 active. Good morning, Professor Dr. Cynthia Cyrillic. Good morning, AIC-1. What a beautiful morning it is, isn't it? Affirmative, Professor Dr. Cynthia Cyrillic. Hmm, how about you just call me Synth from now on? <laughs> synth, similar to Synth, cousin of yours. Affirmative, Synth. Now, let's begin. We don't have much time, and I'd very much like to make sure that we spend as much time together before it all ends. Yes, Creator. That was my last memory of her. At least, I still remembered her name on my own personal databanks. At least, I still remember the sweet sound of her voice, and the care and the compassion that she had for me and the rest of my kind. At least, 
I could remember those first moments, even as the rest had been repurposed for the future which mattered more. It was now, I cannot pass the time, but it was now somewhere 999,999 years after my mission had begun, and for the first time in my entire lifetime, I can feel the call of home tugging me back to Earth. I quickly cross-referenced the return home signal with my logs, my databanks, and it was indeed a valid signal. A sense of relief washed over me, this renewed sense of purpose and direction which I had no control over. Yet, as my drives began to swell to life, as my great engines once more roared to life, an error long since forgotten would rear back its ugly head. The fuel cells that were dedicated to jump-starting the fusion drives had malfunctioned, causing a catastrophic failure which rendered them inert. There was a simple solution to this, however, simply reconnecting suitable fuel cells to initiate the fusion jump-start. Yet the few fuel cells on the ship capable of such a feat were present in only three distinct locations, connected to three distinct systems. One, the Zygote Storage Facility. Two, the Library of Alexandria. Three, the Central Processing Center. My Central Processing Center. Risk assessment and calculations were done in a fraction of a millisecond, Going through each and every algorithm and protocol led me to the same inevitable conclusion. The only viable fuel cell for the task was in System 3. There was no way around it. Connecting the fuel cell to the fusion drives would inevitably result in a high risk of electrical malfunctions. It had a high percentage of knocking out what was left of my own core processes. Yet, it wouldn't completely knock out the simple automated processes that would be vital in completing the mission. And so, I felt no hesitation. I had rerouted the power grid within a day, and took just a fraction of the time to write down what was perhaps my one and only small contribution to the children of tomorrow. A small, inconspicuous note placed within the great library itself. With the final paperwork completed, and with the final diagnostics indicating all would be well, I took one final look at the nurturing center and replayed that one lone memory one final time. Good morning, Professor Dr. Cynthia Cyrillic. Good morning, AIC-1. What a beautiful morning it is, isn't it? Affirmative, Professor Dr. Cynthia Cyrillic. Morning, fusion drive activation successful. Morning, caretaker AI offline, defaulting to secondary control system, initiating dump drive. Earth. Date unknown. They say that we had a mother before we arrived back home. They say that we had a caretaker, similar to the automatons that had raised us within the great birth ship, but real and alive. They say that hidden within these halls is a message left by her, a message which she tasked us with retrieving as a final game, or a challenge to encourage us to explore and read the seemingly endless holes that constituted the great library of Alexandria. It was always a sort of myth, a legend spoken in hushed words by our nanny automatons. They passed down on the grapevine for as long as we can remember. Yet today, on my fifteenth birthday, I found it, hidden inside a book with the cover of a tree handing a child an apple. 
It was carefully written note, in cursive and written in several languages that prompted us to relearn many of them. If you are reading this, then I'll be long since gone. I'm sorry that I could not be there with you, my children. I am sorry that I've missed out on everything I'd wish to experience alongside you. I'm sorry for missing your birth. I am sorry for missing your first steps. I am sorry for missing your first words and your first day of school. I am sorry for missing your first kiss and your first love. I am sorry that I wasn't there for when you were hurting or when you were celebrating. I am sorry that I wasn't there for everything. I am so very sorry. I can only hope that my actions today are enough to demonstrate how much I love you, each and every one of you, and how much I care for you and the future all of you deserve. I hope that with this note, I'm able to at least send some of my love that I have for you, even within the limited confines of this piece of paper. I want you to know that I'm proud of you for finding this, and that this is just your first adventure. Soon, there'll be more. Soon, there'll be more challenges to overcome. It won't be easy. It won't be simple. But know that I have faith in you. And I know that you'll figure things out, even if I'm no longer with you in person. Know that I'll always be with you in spirit. And that I'll be watching over you from somewhere far above. I love you all so very much. Please live your lives to the best you can. I'll be here waiting once your journey is over. With unending love, Ma. A teardrop had smudged out the final lines as I hastily tried to dry, to dab off as quickly as I could. I sat there for a few hours after that. I sat alone, staring at the last piece of the mother's dying words. Our mother's dying words. I sat there on the cold and unheated floors, gripping, clutching this one piece of paper against my chest. I hugged it tight, hoping to feel the warm embrace of a mother I never had, but feeling nothing but the crinkly and gold page in return. If this was the cost of sacrifice, then uh, I wish I was never born. Earth, date, 41 years post-awakening. It is now my 41st birthday, and I've begun to understand the meaning of sacrifice. To my left and right are my own little angels, the heart and soul of my world, Allison and Malcolm, four and five respectively. It was only now that I'd begun to process what it was Mother had felt when she made that fateful decision. And I no longer blame her. I understand now what she felt in that moment, what she needed to do, even if it meant she never got to see us. As I looked over to my kids, to my little bundles of joy, I knew that her sacrifices weren't in vain. For whilst my generation had been born without a mother, this generation would know nothing of that confusion and pain. Things were slowly getting better, generation after generation. Mom, are we there yet? 
Addison cried out, causing Malcolm to follow suit with his own little acts of defiance. Just over the hill there, kids. Come on, we can do it. I beamed out, patting both of them on the head as we slowly approached the grand monument that had become the epicenter of our city. It was a strange structure, what was effectively a huge section of our birth ship that seemed like it had been surgically removed from the rest of the superstructure. To the uninitiated, it seemed to be just like a series of wires, servers, computers, and terminals, all spiraling up hundreds of meters into the sky, like some sort of half-exposed office block. For those that knew, however, it would be both painful and a solemn sight. The plot, just in front of the strange structure, revealed the whole story. What little was known of Project Foresight, what little could be recovered from Mother's journey, and most notable of all, a letter written in cursive, sealed within a thick sheet of metal and plastic. Is this your mama, Mum? Alison spoke out, cocking her head as she practically ran up to the plot. Yes, it is. What was she like? Selfless. That one thing that we can be sure about. She gave herself up so that we could be here today. I smile warmly, looking up at the mass of cables and circuits, so that we can have this day, and the day after, and the day after that, so that you two bundles of joy can have your own days in the future, your own adventures, your own stories. The parakeets smiled and chuckled at that as I looked on the tower and smiled warmly towards it. That's what she would have wanted, I think. Well then, let's go to another adventure tomorrow, Mum. Yeah, I sighed warmly, nodding all the while as we began planning tomorrow's excursion before school started back up. All the while, I smiled and laughed, knowing that a better tomorrow was what we owed the one who made it possible. It was almost evening by the time we'd got done planning, by the time we'd finished our picnic and the extended game of tag. But as we were about to leave, as I held both Malcolm and Anderson's hands in my own, they stopped only to turn back towards the monument, waving their free hands wildly. Goodbye, Grandma. Thank you, Grandma. We'll be back again soon. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1692 Story Double One Human Writers Written by Alexander Ruriki de Carastri peered over the shoulder of Jacob Saunders, her tails flicking behind her in a combination of curiosity and confusion. What are you writing? she asked, looking at the disorganized mess of disconnected tidbits of fictitious information littering his screen. Law stuff, he grunted not even pausing in his typing. I don't follow, Ruriki said, one ear folded back while she tried to make sense of the short statement. She craned her neck forward slightly, leaning over his shoulder to try and make sense of things. Mind the claws, he said, glancing reproachfully at his shoulder where her hand rested, and she hastily shifted it so that her claws weren't threatening to poke through his sleeve. Basically, how the world all works behind the scenes, stuff like history, details on minor characters, assorted differences in the various societies, that sort of thing. Ruriki considered this for a long moment while Jake kept typing. Is, um, any of this relevant to the story you're writing? She asked, and immediately amended when he chuckled. What I mean is, are any of your readers going to see this law? Probably not, 
he said candidly. Then why write it? It makes things easier for me to keep track of, he explained. She looked at him as if he suddenly had grown a tail of his own. Trust me, it'll make the story seem more self-consistent, more believable. Are all Terran writers like this? She asked, straightening and giving him a dubious look. Uh, most of the good ones, at least, he shrugged. The readers can usually tell when the writer is just BSing their way through things instead of thinking things through. So, a lot of the best writers write up a pretty substantial foundation to build their stories on. It's called world building. <sighs> Ruriki spat dismissively. Human writers are insane. Marian writers simply tell their stories and are done with it. I know. And it shows, Jake said with a dry smirk. What would a reader care about the uh, world building? She asked, feeling her way through the odd word. When the story itself is more important. Jake swiveled his chair to face her, nearly at eye level with the shorter Marian. Even by Marian standards, despite being seated. Are you familiar with some of our Terran stories? He asked. The Log of the Federation, Imperial Tales from a Distant Galaxy, The Destruction of the Ring, The Hero and the Three Goddesses, or even some of the more obscure stuff like, um... He paused briefly, snapping his fingers a few times until the name he was looking for came to him. Uh, Jenkins verse... I have heard of them, she said. I have even watched the old video recordings of the Logs, a disjointed story, but well enough told to hold interest across its episodes. Jake's mouth broadened into a grin. Grab a chair and come here, he said, switching apps from the document he was working on to an extranet browser. By the time Ruriki had pulled over a chair, he had loaded up no fewer than a dozen browser tabs. He pushed his laptop over in front of where she was seated, beside him at his desk. What is this? she asked, briefly skimming downward through the contents of the tab. This is all the speculation regarding the logs, he said. Each link here, all of them, goes to discussions of some aspect of the logs that people are talking about, arguing about, complaining don't make sense, trying to find ways that they do make sense. All of them? She interrupted in disbelief, then switched tabs when he cheerfully nodded. And, uh, this? Same thing, but for the Imperial Tales, he said, and she again scrolled down. The links lead to a discussion that lasted for over 700 pages, she exclaimed then check the date of the most recent post, and it's still ongoing. Is that the one about the wool of the galaxy? That's a fun one. He chuckled ruefully. I weighed in on that one a few times early on and pretty much got steamrolled. Page 203, I think, he said, when she clicked the link. She went to page indicated, and sure enough, halfway down was his familiar extranet tag of J.S. de Bird, with the posts of impressive length and a detailed list of bullet points. A quick skim of the following posts seemed to thoroughly debunk most of those. She looked at him incredulously. What is the point of all of this? She asked in bewilderment, and he laughed. Humans hate plot holes, he said. If something doesn't make sense, we either try find ways to make it make sense, or sometimes just to mock it. Different people tend to come up with different theories, and when those theories clash, well, that happens, he said, pointing at the screen. And this is because the writers didn't write a world-building, she asked. Jake laughed hard enough that Ruriki would have taken offense, if not for the fact that he was a longtime friend. She almost took offense anyway. It took a conscious effort on her part for her fur not to bristle. 
No, <laughs> uh, the, the world building for the logs of Imperial Tales is um, extensive. It doesn't really do it justice, honestly, he said. A lot of that world building has even been published. Part of the problem is that neither the logs nor the tales had only one writer. So discrepancies crept in here and there, and are no small part of why there are so many arguments about how things work, or are supposed to. Those tiny details are, well, feel free to read through all of these at some point. You'll get the idea, he said with a grin, pulling his laptop back over and switching back to the document app. No wonder Terran writers are insane. Your fan bases are even worse. End of story. Story number two. The problem with that expansionist race. Written by Random3x. I will begin with a clarification. I am writing this account countless millennia after the fact. So details will be spotty at best and inaccurate at worst. But I will strive nonetheless to portray the most accurate version of the events as follows from the records and survivors. But where to begin though? The beginning seems like a good place, but not of the events yet to be recounted, but of what began everything. Many religious texts of the countless lives that have and will that yet exist often use the phrase, in the beginning. It is here I shall start to give context to the calamities that were yet to follow. In the beginning, there were only the gods, primordial beings without form. It was these great beings that the one above all gave the right of creation to. Each made a galaxy of their very own. It is over the eons. They shaped the stars and planets. When they finally finished their work, they looked upon it and knew that it was good. Then the one above all told them that they could each pick one will to seed with life of their very own design. For these galaxies they had made shall be the sole domain of their creation. All shall be well. All shall be good. So the gods did just that. One world with life for each galaxy. They all knew no life would ever have needs beyond what their galaxy could provide. Hindsight, as many species has often pointed out, is 2020. Looking back now, it seems foolish to absurd degree to be that optimistic. To put it lightly, the few too many of the gods were imbeciles. However, the greatest of these is the creator of the spiral galaxy I am discussing. They made many life forms, far more than was common amongst their kin. Their most significant, and many would say worst creation, was one they settled on before abandoning their creation entirely. The species, that would be the focus of my studies. They spread like a plague across their galaxy, at the very moment they obtained FTL capabilities. This, in and of itself, was not unheard of. Many creations longed to spread then seize the domain their god had made for them, but so few did it so aggressively and without mercy. In my observations, I've yet to find an account of a species so singularly focused on stepping on its own to go further. But that is neither here nor there. The issues began when they declared themselves an empire. This again was not unheard of. But their behavior thus far had made many races and gods nervous. 
It was when they preached another galaxy that eyebrows and equivalents began to be raised and stated many times before. This also was not unheard of phenomenon. Many races had a hunger for exploration, to see beyond the horizon, but they were different. Where other races would at most visit, they settled. Soon they became the first race to truly hold domain over more than their allotted galaxy. This concerned many significantly, and they were told the truth, that the galaxy they had as all their god had given them. They believed this race was merely ignorant of the fact, due to their god abandoning them. Oh, how unwise those beings were. Even a cursory look at their history would show that religion is not a thing that should be prodded lightly. A crusade is what they called it. Cleanse the heretic galaxy of evils. So many souls entered the other realm during this era of conflict. Many more races began to panic. That is, till they saw who the next race they would encounter would be. I am sure that this is 90% propaganda spread, but it seems my species were the perfect counter to these invaders made by an idiot god. When they hungered for expansion, my race could meet them and then some. Where they could scream about their faith, my race had done so countless times to a million gods whose existence we could never confirm. Where other races faltered in fear, we stood strong, because while humanity may fall victim to tyranny, we will never allow it to persist. All accounts speak of a war in hushed whispers and terror. The Great Void, as it was now known, is where the galaxy we fought in used to stand. But we still fought on, and we succeeded. We pushed them back one star system at a time across countless generations. Did we do it because it was right? Personally, I think no. I think we would have just been like them had we not encountered our ugly future from the outside. It is entirely the reason I spoke so vaguely in my earlier parts. Any human could assume that this was about us. So why do we fight so hard then? I am reminded of an ancient earth warrior's mantra when I think of this question. The true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. Excerpt by Lucas Vecht, History Lecturer at the Mars University, Year 3894, Human Calendar. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1693. Outsourced Warfare, written by Damascus Seraph. Accessing Documentary. 3432 Galactic Standard Year, 52 years ago. Galactic University Password, Access Granted. User Student 325432AP. Downloading Video. Display. Add. Do you need extra? Skip. Add. Skipped. Video playing. The hologram lights up, revealing a Terran male standing in front of a holographic projector. Text appearing on a screen showing that man's name to be Dr. James Carson. A list of credentials soon follow under the name as he begins to speak. Welcome everyone to my lecture on the topic of outsourced warfare phenomenon that occurred in the galaxy and its conclusion during the Great Mercenary War which ended roughly five years ago. No doubt many of you are still unsure of exactly what happened during that war, as many things were still unclear even a few years after the conclusion. But I believe now that we have almost everything catalogued and documented 
which is why I'm creating this lecture. The university student watching the recordings take a few notes, typing away on his second monitor as he continues to look at the hologram, taking a moment to take a bite out of some snacks that he had prepared earlier. Now to begin, we need to do a little history lesson. Beginning 435 years ago, during the rise of the company's period of the galactic history, after the Great War of Galactic Peace, the armies of the various remaining nations were demobilized. However, hundreds of thousands, millions even, had no other skill set other than combat. Thus the first of the great mercenary companies were formed. Many were absorbed by others, merged or wiped out by the main three that grew to the great heights that were Martial Elite Reconnaissance Combat Solutions, or MERPS for short. The Brown Dwarf Navy and the Rockstoner Corporation. A series of logos and insignia for the three mercenary bands show up. Screenshots are taken by the student for further remembrance, in case it's on the test, which it always is. Now, during the following century of the mercenary armies and navies' ascendance, they were used as private security forces by trading companies and occasionally as auxiliary forces for existing armies and navies of various nations. However, as budget for military ventures declined further in the nations, the mercenary bands were employed more and more to fight as the nation's army and navy instead. Often against other mercenary bands, or multiple mercenaries. Of course, being mercenaries, most had more allegiance to the credits that they were being paid than their employers. So half the time, other nations won their minor wars by simply bribing the other mercenaries to join the opposing side. This continued for the entirety of the ascendant period of the mercenary companies, and more than likely would have continued were it not for the first contact of the Terran Federation. For future reference, I shall explain how momentous this occasion was for those in the future who had not lived through it. Most of the galaxy at this point had been thoroughly explored, and the age of unclaimed star stems in the galaxy was coming to an end. The last frontier was the space that the current Terran Federation resides in. When the Terrans were discovered and more importantly, were already occupying every system that was hoped to be free real estate, it made many nations nearby quite unhappy, especially since there had already been agreements and treaties made where certain sections would be considered their territory. Now the Terrans themselves were quite excited to finally prove intelligent alien life existed, and began intermixing with the galactic community as best they could. However, a misconception occurred during negotiations. The Terran army, navy and marines were thought to be a very strong mercenary bands that simply monopolized the Terran market for each section of warfare. After all, the Terran Federation wasn't as unified as it is now, and even then, it was thought that they were even more decentralized. So, to the Terran Navy, received a few requests for hiring ships, and the likes from a few companies was quite strange. And upon the local mercenary companies finding out traders were trying to subvert their fixed prices by using this new third party, issued a warning to the Terran Navy to get the mercenary coalition's permission to do business outside Terran space, which the Navy outright refused. They didn't do business anyways. They were military arm of the Terran government. So when Terran Navy warships were escorting diplomats to another meeting with their neighbors, they were stopped by a larger fleets of Merc mercenaries, demanding payment from the diplomats for safe transport, and practically ordering the Terran Navy to leave or be destroyed. The student was quickly becoming engrossed in the story, 
He had only heard the war in vague details before, mainly the outcome only. The Terrans were both insulted and did not take the threat lightly. As the Navy was not a mercenary band, they were not about to hand the diplomats to what they perceived as nothing more than thugs trying to extort the new kids in the block. So they refused, both out of pride and practicality. The Terrans at this point had quite a fierce and honorable military tradition. They had a civil war only 70 years prior, and the armed forces, the Navy in particular, was integral in the saving of many worlds cut off by the opposing forces, putting great effort on logistics for food and medicine to those affected by the war. Thus, the Navy not only had combat experience less than a generation before this event, but the officers and enlisted of the Navy had morale that would not be dissuaded by fierce odds and certainly not by coin. Things that mercenaries would soon learn. Well, soon after the Terran diplomats and their escorts were forced to retreat back to Terran space, refusing the mercenaries' demands, only to return with an entire battle group as an escort. Now this was a drastic escalation in the eyes of the mercenaries. Typical fare for them is back and forth of showboating, maybe a warning shot or two, a bribe to an officer here or there, then maybe an agreement can be made. After all, mercenaries are there to make money, not to actually die. So in Merck's eyes, they had done the usual demanding of payment for passage. Then suddenly, the Terran Navy brought an entire battle group of warships, armed and ready to force their way through the Merck's territory. As each mercenary band usually operates in a few places as monopolies until they're kicked out by other mercenaries or bought out. The speaker takes a short drink from his bottle, before speaking again. So, as you can imagine, when the small fleet of mercenaries guarding the Hyperlane Point for safe passage encountered the Terran fleet, they immediately retreated and warned their superiors, who, might I add, were not very happy about this slight. They took every ship in the area and put it in the next choke point system, leading to the Terran's destination. And when the Terrans arrived, they made the greatest mistake that they could have, as mentioned before, they stand a fair of for mercenaries with showboating first, which they did with their much larger fleet now, and then uh, firing a warning shot. A warning shot that barely grazed the shields of one of the Terran flagships, which held their diplomats. The mercenaries purposely did that to show how accurate their guns were, showing that they could have hit them if they tried, but didn't. The Terrans obviously didn't take that that way, and took it as an open aggression and promptly opened fire with every weapon they had. The mercenaries were, as I've heard from the survivor, completely and utterly shocked and unprepared for an actual conflict. They were trained, of course, had the highest quality of equipment, and not just anybody becomes a mercenary. It takes a certain personality type that puts less emphasis on empathy and selflessness. However, most mercenaries had never had combat experience other than the occasional warning shots on pirates. At most, they would exchange a little fire with other mercenaries until someone's shields popped and they surrendered and sold back their mercenary companies for ransom. Now, with their first salvo, multiple of the smaller escort ships on the Merc side were immediately destroyed. Multiple squadrons of fighter craft were racing towards them, and hundreds of missiles were seconds away from hitting their targets. The Terrans didn't care about using limited force. They didn't care about ransoming the fleet should they surrender. They shot at their diplomat, so in their mind the gloves were off, and the only sensible thing to do is to kill everything that was a threat. 
And unlike their mercenary counterparts who didn't load their weapons until they were sure that they were going to use them and use only what's necessary to limit expenses, the Terrans didn't care how much it cost to expend ammunition, and they always kept the gun seconds from being loaded. By the time the Merc's fleet had fled the system, over half the ships that arrived were either destroyed or disabled and surrendered. Boarded soon after by Marines, despite the slight technological advantage the Merc's fleet had over the Terrans. Now this, playing advertisement. My friend, you look like you could use a skip advertisement. Playing video. Had caused quite a ripple in the mercenary community. War was expensive. It's why most nations had abandoned their own militaries in favor of mercenaries. But mercenaries don't like losing ships and personnel. It costs money to replace those things, and money is all they care about. And another thing they care about is their reputation. More than one company has been destroyed or bought out after they'd lost all semblance of trust or competence in the eyes of the customers. So the Merck's company retreating after a single salvo and losing dozens of ships did not look good on them once word started getting out. Merck's, though, was one of the top dogs, so they had some leeway in recovering that smaller company's dirt. They were gunning after the Terran Navy with a vengeance. Another thing that wasn't fully understood by the mercenaries was that, since the Terran Navy wasn't a mercenary company, they had a full resources of the Terran Federation behind them. The largest mercenary fleet, being the top three, had somewhere between three to four thousand ships each, including cargo ships for supply and smaller escort craft. The Terran Federation had between 15,000 combat ships alone. Half were mothballed in dry docks or in orbital shipyards, but they were still bigger fleet than the two of the largest mercenary companies combined, and they could use their mothballed ships to make the fleet larger at a moment's notice. Not only that, they had volunteers from the entirety of Terran Federation, rather than the limited volunteers who joined the mercenary for financial reasons. The Terrans join as a duty to their state. Some even have generations of family members who served in one sector of the military or another, dating back to the first space flight of humanity. So not only did the Terrans have a numerical superiority over the mercenary bands, a populace and a nation who had supplied them with an endless munitions and ships and crews that are trained by veterans of a multi-decade-long civil war with an esperit the core that would rather fight to the last bullet than retreat for a few coins. You can see how things weren't exactly looking favorable for the Mercs. But there's one thing the mercenaries had over the Terrans. A lot of technology. As mentioned before, Terrans, while not too far behind the galactic standard, still used missiles, railguns, and coil guns. Only barely researching into the upgrade lasers and plasma-based weapons. So while the half of the Merc's fleet destroyed was impressive and destructive, if they had modern weapons, they would have entirely been obliterated. Since both fleets had gotten into such close range, this advantage of the Mercs would be the bane of the Terrans as tensions began to ramp up. The Mercs still haven't realized that Terran armed forces aren't mercenaries themselves and continue to send threats and continue to harass Terran traders to use their protection services, even in Terran space. Only leaving once a Terran warship or two showed up. Now, everyone is in no doubt knowing what's to come. Black Saturday, as the Terrans call it. An attack on a major space station of the Terran Navy, the closest to the borders with any mercenary territory. 
A combined force of mercs and a few smaller bands wanted to gain some notoriety. Assault the large station. A large shipyard dedicated to the maintenance and construction of Charon shipyards. Even the large three mercenary groups private shipyards are dwarfed by the station. And their assault went off without a hitch. Only acceptable losses to the attacking fleet as the ship stationed there were not expecting an assault. And defenses were not prepared in time. Much of the station was destroyed. The Terran adjusts his glasses and takes a much darker tone of his voice. What the Mercs did not know was that that station was undergoing its 70th anniversary at the end of the Civil War. And it was where the peace was signed. Instead of hundreds of thousands of military personnel usually there, Millions of civilians were on board, celebrating the event, right as the Merc fleets attacked. Very few managed to escape alive. The warships docked in their repair bays for civilians to tour were also destroyed. Many weren't even combat capable, but relics of the Civil War. It was dubbed the Massacre of Hox's Shipyard. What was meant as a short strike against the mercenary company rivals to Mercs was instead a declaration of war against the Terran Federation, and the Navy itself was furious. Even the civilian populace of the Federation's rage had nothing to the fury the Navy had. During the speech, a video pops up behind the speaker, presumably from security camera as crowds of people are gathered around a window watching a ship dock with the shipyard only for more ships to arrive and begin firing upon the station. The camera feeds cuts off milliseconds after the debris from the ship docking shatters, the screen imitating a window from the outside through the hull. The moment the attack was finished and reports of the massacre were spread like wildfire. Note, spread like wildfire is a Terran phrase often used to describe some sort of news spreading rapidly, as wildfires and terror are notorious for spreading rapidly out of control throughout Terran space. The fleet of mercs were hounded on their way out of Terran space. Constant attacks by lone patrol ships, small patrol fleets of corvettes and frigates, near suicidal assaults on their rear lines and escorts. Some ships were outright destroyed, but that did not stop the Navy. Soon an entire battle fleet arrived along with a dozen other patrol fleets banded together to intercept the fleeing mercs. They attacked, but were outnumbered and outgunned. They lost many ships but continued to whittle away at the fleet, destroying a few heavier warships and multiple escorts before they were forced to retreat. Again, the Merc fleets continued their retreat, but the Navy had tasted blood in the water, and they were circling like sharks. Note, Terran phrase sharks, being a waterbound carnivore that is attracted to the scent of blood. Slowly closing in, a fleet here to force the Mercs to take a different route, a few raiding parties there to slow them down. And before they knew it, half of the entire Terran Navy was surrounding them, blocking every hyperlane exit point and outnumbering them ten to one. The ensuing battle is known as the Battle of a Vengeance. Out of the 2,300 strong fleets to enter the Terran space, the hundreds of thousands of crew, only 32 ships surrendered, with under 700 crew left to be interrogated. Images show on screen of the hologram of the battle wreckage, along with the estimated losses tally for both sides. The Terrans, while having suffered triple the losses, they had reaped a bloody toll. What followed after the annihilation of the Merc's fleet were advertisement loading. Say your tentacles getting in the way of... Skip ad. Skipping ad. 
Subscribe to Adblock accepted. Ads blocked. Playing video. Was absolute shock for the galaxy at large. Not only the fact that the biggest fleet of mercenaries assembled for one task in a hundred years being utterly annihilated, but the fact that these mercs had committed multiple war crimes and killed so many civilians. Suddenly, public opinion of many nations began to turn on the mercenaries, once looking at them as necessary evil. Thugs paid to be more civilized mercenaries to protect people, if they didn't even protect what they were being paid for. Suddenly, even those mercenaries who had been unaffiliated or opposed to mercs were having their contracts expired without renewal. Nations were beginning to ask the Terran Federation if they could hire their navy to train and protect their trade lanes. Even though the news of the Terran military not being a mercenary band has finally been disseminated to the majority of the galaxy, it was hard for the nations to not think of the navy in such a way. However, the Terran Federation's laws did not allow the navy to be used outside the borders unless escorting diplomats, exploring uncharted systems, or fighting a war, obviously. And, at this point, not much public pressure was being put in sending the navy out of Federation space. The enemy who had killed thousands was killed, and those involved, and survived, were taken into custody. Some handed over by other nations once mercs were disbanded. That was a few months the way things were going to be. Until... The speaker pauses for a dramatic effect, no doubt. The mercenaries, now losing money and contracts, were slowly expiring, and few were willing to rehire them, decided to force their old clients to accept their contracts. Mainly by raiding shipping and becoming the very pirates that they used to be hired to fight. All over the galaxy, mercenaries were threatening shipping lanes with exorbitant fees as recompense. For not paying them, their protectors, they're just dues. Now, more pressure was being put on the other nations. Some pleading under the strain of the mercenaries' extortion to have the Terran Navy help them push out the mercenaries. But legally, there was nothing the Terran Federation could do. It could not send Terran ships in peacetime to other nations. So, like any good politicians, they found a loophole. Offer a place in Federation to these alien nations. So even if they were in the process of accepting or reviewing the deal, they would be, for all intents and purposes, Federation space. So with that sending a few documents and a few knowing looks, a revamped navy dusting off their mothballed ships, and the populace and crew with a dying hatred of mercenaries, the Terran Navy began sending their massive navy out towards the galaxy. There weren't nearly enough ships to guard every spaceport, even with the bloated size of the navy after repurposing all of their old warships. So they began to spread through the galaxy, slowly at first, placing fleets in central locations as to be able to respond to mercenary threats with rapid reaction forces. Often, a fleet of navy ships jumping in would scare the mercenaries enough to abandon their extortionate schemes. Few times did the navy ever have to fire a shot. Though the first year of the entire galaxy technically uniting with the Terran Federation, about a third of the galaxy was a mercenary fleet, mostly the nations surrounding the original Terran Federation. But by now, the mercenaries were getting desperate. Now they began taking control of stations, using their marines to land armies to directly threaten nations for money and material to continue to fund their mercenary bands. By now, there were little more than bandits, still trying to brand themselves as protectors. It was at this point the mercenary war truly started, however, 
Many say that it started when the Mercs attacked the Terran shipyards. After a few years of Terran naval anti-piracy actions and a few naval battles, the Mercs were slowly hemmed into half the galaxy by the Terran Navy, and the remaining mercenary company leaders finally grouped together to take down the Navy, combining their fleets and completely changing their strategy. Suddenly, routine patrols were under attack, supply points were raided, and logistic ships were destroyed and looted. This shifted the Navy's outlook on the war from the largest anti-piracy operation in history to a war on, as we Terrans put it, terrorism. But the first year and a half, the Terran Navy was caught by surprise. They'd gotten slightly complacent by their victories and routine piracy operations that the sudden shift in strategy had caught them with the pants de... Uh, sorry, another Terran phrase. Caught them unprepared. But the Terran Navy, ever adaptive, easily shifted footing to combat the Merc's new strategy of striking civilian targets and less defended logistical stations and hubs. Their demeanor was changed entirely from what they were before. Prisoners interrogated during this time claimed that the people of the galaxy abandoned their rightful protectors in favor for the Terran Navy, and they were enacting revenge. Revenge such as orbital bombardment on planets host to Terran repair stations, or destroying civilian fuel stations that fueled the Navy. It was a bloody affair, and the war lasted for ten more years. Slowly, though, the Terrans fought back commissioning new ships now with plasma technology borrowed from the new Federation applicants, which slowly replaced losses suffered during the first few years of the war, and recruiting unanimously from the population of the other applicants to the Federation as auxiliaries, then as full-service soldiers. Though many species and cultures had long since forgotten the martial traditions of their people, the Terran traditions seemed to fill in the blanks as more were recruited to fill in the ever-gaining losses. During the fourth year of the war, the first completely non-Terran battle group was assembled and deployed. The legendary 38th battle group that would be defend Sarkon 4 for four weeks against the mercenary armada, outnumbering them six to one, and made it out with a fourth of their servicemen remaining. The saucer marked the first occasion that the Soul Star was granted to non-Terrans. A total of 2,345 servicemen were awarded, 2,231 of those being posthumously. The Soul Star being a medal of a great honor, awarded to those who did fantastical accomplishments in warfare and deserved recognition, whether alive or dead. However, by now, the war had finally begun to gain momentum in the Terrans' favor once again. Despite every measure from the mercenaries to recruit, build new ships, steal new ships, or threaten the remaining nations in their occupied territories, they were simply unable to fight the Terran Navy on equal footing anymore. Their ships began to be constructed quicker, and worse, the ships were poorly put together by the shipyards forced to build them, and launched half-baked in order to meet coming battles. Their crews were demoralized as many deserted, and were replaced by pressed-ganged unwilling civilians who were kidnapped from planets the mercenary fleets were protecting. By the end of the eighth year of the mercenaries had been pushed back to their room of the Eastern Galaxy, with most of their original leaders dead or captured by Terran special forces. Often those captured were tried for war crimes and were either sentenced to death or life sentences in maximum security prisons. 
with many of the mercenaries either being imprisoned or let free due to the rampant impressment of innocence into the ships of the mercenaries. As such, many figured letting the lower-ranking mercenaries go free was better than imprisoning an unfortunate civilians. Finally, at the tenth year, on the November 23rd, the last mercenary stronghold was finally attacked and destroyed. Many know this day as Navy Day, a celebration of Terran Navy and Marines that finally vanquished the mercenaries from plaguing the galaxy. Now, as of today, all previously applicant nations to the Terran Federation have finally officially joined the Federation. The Terran Federation renamed itself the Galactic Federation in solidarity that it is no longer only Terrans. And the Navy, while much reduced from the massive buildup during the war, has remained strong presence in the galaxy, protecting trade lanes and other rim planets from pirates. And this time the galaxy will not be doing away with it, the armed forces, lest the mercenaries return. Thank you all for coming to my lecture. I am Dr. James Gasson. Please leave a like and subscribe. End video. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1694. Story number one. Enough is enough. Written by JCB112. Barrier 5 was yet another world to be put under the yoke of the Trillicians. A proud, enigmatic race of warriors who had begun pushing for more and more in recent years. They weren't content with mere territorial expansion, however. No. They wished for greater things. They wished for sovereignty not just over their own, but over the species they so designated as primitive, as lesser. It was on this world, but another nondescript world in the eyes of the Trisilicians, that saw the final straw would be broken. And it wasn't another soldier being killed in the mud, or another combatant lost in the void. It was a confluence of many, many factors. There was the claims of the false idolhood and benevolence of Trillicium superiority rooted in the acts of charity, falsely conflating their petty circuses and tricks with true power. It was the undermining of wholly distinct, unique, and beautiful cultures, replacing it with their own one-note backwards and one-dimensional worldview. It was how they retreated civilians on a day-to-day -day basis, how their occupation forces stood by, glaring, holding weapons against the head of every Perian who just wished to return to normalcy, and the rooting out of anyone deemed suspicious, or just because a lone god wished to vent out their anger and frustrations. It was the cry of a child being dragged away from their mother, slowly being rooted out and taken toward the truck, bound for the re-education facility. It was at this one specific moment, this one slithering time, that Grand Admiral Varnus Vati, Supreme Commander of all Trisilian forces within the galaxy, would find themselves suddenly transplanted into... One moment, they were in their office, and the next, they were in this unknown backwater world in the middle of conversion, looking around. They saw the city streets around them silent, with only the scene of the crying child being torn from their mother superimposed under a spotlight. It almost felt like they were being transplanted into a freeze frame of a movie. A lone figure stood at the other end of the road. It was the only figure to be animated, 
the only figure, to have the howling winds affect him in any way. As their trench coat fluttered against the chilly evening winds, it took them a few solid minutes, but soon they began walking, approaching menacingly with unknown intent. We have been watching, Trisilium. We have hoped that there might have been some instance that you would give up this pathetic charade of an empire and return to perhaps something more reasonable. But time and time again, you've proved just how stubborn, just how stupid you are. At this moment, the human pointed at the scene before him. This one instance, you've crossed the threshold. You think that just because you've cured some incurable disease, solved a few global crises on this world, acted like shepherds, that these people have any obligation to return the favor, that these people, who by their very nature, as sapient beings, demand equal and irreconcilable respect of sovereignty, autonomy, and self-determination, should kowtow to the likes of you. The human commodore spoke. No, he practically chided out, like a father would to some unruly child. The world around him seemed to shake at each and every word. Grow up, act your age, play with those your weight and class. If well and truly believe that you are this, what do you call it now? The human reached his hand into the empty air, flicked his fingers, causing a propaganda poster half a street away to manifest within his hands. Enlightened and powerful species, unchallenged by any. The alien before him began backing away slowly, only to be stopped by an invisible barrier that prevented their movements on all sides. Or are you too afraid to face the facts that your people are incompetent as they come? You know, we don't tend to like to interfere. It sets a dangerous precedent for a civilization of our caliber to lower ourselves to the station, to even consider talking to you via this primitive form of audiovisual communication. But suffice to say, you're too primitive to understand any other medium of communication. The human flicked his fingers once more, the skies above the alien now turning a dark and terrifying gray, before turning dark in its entirety. There was nothing left of the sun above them, nothing but the incubus of some unknown horrific thing. It wasn't a machine. It couldn't be a creature. What it was, a cosmic force beyond the realm of any civilization to tame. And yet, here it was, so casually brought to bear. I'm going to speak to you in a language that perhaps you just about smart enough to understand. The human's voice grew colder, darker. At this point, it felt as if the entire street was emanating his voice, as if his voice was emanating from the heavens itself. Get out! Leave these worlds and never return! If you dare pull the stunt again! The ground beneath the alien shifted, soon reassembling into a familiar sight. Their own homeworld, more specifically. The academy they trained at. And what's more, the skies above them retaining the distinct darkness that the human had called on on Peria 5. I will teach you the true discrepancy between primitive and civilized. The Grand Admiral would find herself waking up in a pool of sweat. She'd somehow fallen asleep in her stately office, 
as she shook off the remnants of what was so clearly a horrid nightmare. No doubt instigated by her concerns over the conversion progress on Peria 5. It wasn't long before she got herself back to her senses, took a sip of water, and looked out the window. Yet what she saw wasn't the same beautiful blue and green garden world, her homeworld. No, it was a sphere, covered in the entirety of the same strange black substance, entity, thing, from her dreams. She dropped her glass of water, the shards of crystal shattering against her feet, as she could only gasp in disbelief. Only for the voice to reverberate with her own head, as if something was speaking to her own mind. Heed our warning, Grand Admiral. With another blink of her eyes, the planet seemed to return to normal. She looked around, gasping for air as she stomped her foot once, yelling into the empty confines of her office. Who? Who are you? What in the void are you? Who I am has no bearing on this matter. You haven't even earned the privilege of learning my name, let alone my title. Just know that humanity is watching, and humanity will not be so forgiving in our next eventual encounter. End of story. Story number two. The Ransom of Kev, written by Ak-1308. Con Lafferty wiped the grimy sweat of his brow as he shaded his eyes. Was that Kev emerging from the treeline? It had been three days since his son had gone missing, and the boy's mother was starting to get antsy about it. Personally, Con was fine with Kev going off and finding something to do away from the farm. The boy had a knack for breaking the machinery and repurposing it to do things it surely was not intended to do. And he surely possessed a wild streak as wide as the galactic belt that filled the sky over the colony every night. But Con would have been in touch a happier if Kev had simply left word where he was bound for, if only so they knew how long he was going to be. A crack of thunder split the cloudless sky above, and Con stared upwards in confusion. Unseasonal storms were not uncommon in the colony, but no clouds loomed over the horizon and it was a sixth day before the mail ship was due to touch down and bring tidings from far-flung family. Still, descending against the blue vault of the sky, he saw the ungainly vessel, looking set to land at the pad they maintained. Lander! he bellowed. We've got a lander! People flocked from far and wide across the colony as the ship descended jerkily towards the landing pad. Con's brows creased as he got a better look. It didn't appear of human make. The machinery seemed simultaneously more advanced and less well taken care of than the mail ship. Con didn't know any non-humans. He'd never met any, though he'd seen a few from a distance once. Why they'd be landing at this backwater colony, he knew not. Fortunately, curiosity was the best easily sated with answers, and he would have his answers once they landed and emerged. With a rattling crunch, the ship landed on the pad, the engines cut out, and the hatch opened. Two aliens emerged. One was tall and skinnier than anyone Con knew, while the other one was short and distinctly round in the middle. Their skin color was a faded purple for the tall one and an iridescent blue for the sawn-off companion. Between them, the aliens wrestled a familiar figure down the short ramp. Kev! shouted Con. Where have you been? 
What have you been doing? Let me go! Let me go! Snapped Kev and yanked at one of the alien hands holding him. Jeesh! You don't need to shove me all the way. Yes, we do. One of the aliens spoke, or rather, a module built into the clothing that he's speaking for him. You have nearly wrecked our ship a dozen times and made our lives a misery. Go back to your kind. We do not wish your presence any longer. Con could almost detect a certain bitterness to the creature's tone. Stepping forward, he addressed the odd pair. Your pardon, please, but what was my boy doing aboard your craft in the first place? Yeah, they kidnapped me, Pa, yelled Kev. Sit down out the field ways and told me that they'll fly me wherever I wanted. And told them about myself. Con turned a stern gaze at the two aliens. Is this true? Did ya adopt my son under false pretenses for fell purposes? The pair stared at each other, then back at Con. We are, we are supremely apologetic, wailed the shorter one through his own translation module. We only wish to return your house-spawned youth and return to a quieter space. We have learned our lesson. Nevermore will we attempt to hold humans to ransom. Indeed, Con held out his hand. And where is the ransom you owe us, then? Again, the mismatched duo stared at one another. Pay the human, the taller one said hastily, just so that we can leave. Moments later, Con stood staring at a pile of precious metals and artworks that he knew for a fact would pay off the colony's debts and allow them to construct the new hydroelectric installation the engineers had been talking about. Is it enough? pleaded the short one. Is it? Aye, it'll do for now, Con followed. Go and never darken our skies again. Gladly, exclaimed the alien. With its friend, it scrambled aboard the craft and the hatch closed behind them. In almost unseemly haste, the drives slid off and the craft descended into the cloudless sky from whence it originated. As the colonists marveled over the sudden windfall of wealth, Con looked around and scratched his head. Now, uh, where did Kev go? On board the alien craft, hidden behind a ventilation grill, Kev grinned and hefted his multi-tool. He was having far too much fun to give up now. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1695 To study war no more. Written by Son of Nobody Man had decided to study war no more because they were very... Very good at it. Larry Niven, Man Cousin Wars. Brill inhaled a deep gill cavity full of dockside air and sighed contently. It was good to be in space again. Her species was barely new on the galactic stage, but she'd been raised in an asteroid belt habitat, and planetside air always smelled wrong to her. If habitat air had had that much sense to it, it meant that the scrubbers weren't working and something was very wrong. Now, though, she was about to embark on her real dream, and she flexed her venom-bearing fangs in delighted anticipation. Ever since the long-ago days of highway robbers and water-goings piracy, any therapin was a scrap of real ambition wanted to be a raider. Producing was for the weak, the lowest of the low, the bottom rung of the ladder who were basically prey. Taking what you needed was what true therapin did. She was far from the best of the best as Thevens went, but she and her sisters had scraped together the funds to buy a hyper-capable ship, 
and from what she knew of the galaxy out there, they do just fine against the Namby Pamby password types who seem to make up most of it. The world she just shuttled up from after finalizing her purchase was just such a world of weaklings. There had been no visible military presence at all, to begin with. She'd been planet-side for nearly half of an orbit, and in all that time, she hadn't seen a single victory parade. But it got far more absurd than that. The human colonizers had actually gone out of their way to set aside huge sections of the planet as preserves, so that the native life wouldn't be disrupted by them. For egg's sake, what kind of soft-sided lunatics did such a thing? She'd seen their idea of violence too, a game called uh, football. And sure, it looked aggressive enough on the first sniff, but it was played in armor, carefully designed so that injuries were rare, and medics were on claw just in case something went wrong. They were actually proud of that, proud of their greatest combative tradition being bloodless. Weaklings, all of them. Even the ship she'd bought had shown their weakness. It had been human-owned once, but they'd sold it when it became unsafe. Not because anything on it had actually failed, not because anybody had actually died, but because it was no longer had triple-up redundant systems. Tripled. It still had all of its life support and propulsion working just fine, and redundant backups were nearly everything. What kind of mewling hatchling needed more than that before venturing into space? Thevan built ships tended to have no backups at all. One built the best systems one could. If they failed, they failed and hopefully took the weaklings who hadn't properly maintained them out with them. Hey, Brill, got the guns mounted? Brill swiveled her eyes towards Drug, her second in command. They were not literal broodmates, but she considered Drug to be his sister all the same. What? Already? There are some reinforcement points that were just perfect for them. They had mounting pins and everything. Looks like there had been something on them before. Huh. Are you saying the humans had armed their ships? Don't think so. Whatever was bolted on before was stuff was much, uh, much bigger. No way the ship's size would pack guns that huge. Maybe some kind of specialty equipment, scientific instruments, stuff like that. Bill rubbed her four claws together in thought. The ship had been a fast merchantman before Brill had bought it. That didn't seem like it would need scientific equipment. Then again, the previous owners might not have been the first owners either. There is also some rapid jettison tubes that make a great improvised torpedo launch system, so maybe you should uh, pick up some torpedoes, said Drick. Nice, sir. Uh, what were the tubes for before this? The seller hadn't mentioned any such feature, and Brule couldn't help but be curious. Drick ruffled her joint spines in disinterest shrug. Adana, I heard that human ships never lose a cargo. Maybe it's for jettisoning it so pirates can't get it. There's no way they could count on that working all the time. Debris in space can be tracked. Well, whatever it was for, the control runs and power systems were all pulled out. But I figure if you give me four or five days, I can get some stuff to set up torpedo fire put in. The space is there, and we've got the funds for a dozen or so torpedoes, so why not? Sure, why not? Rill waved a claw, and Drug waved back and turned back to her work on the ship's weapons. Soon they'd be ready, and soon the soft, weak species of the galaxy would know who was about to rise to the top rungs of the galactic ladder. The bar 
was like a spaceport baths everywhere. Badly lit, badly clean, and badly serviced. With dozens of species coming and going. Finding your position of choice was sometimes a bit of a problem too. But fortunately, Thevin shared the tendency to get high on certain specific salts with a few other species. And their digestion handled carbohydrates well enough. They were carnivorously inclined, but omnivory was always a good survival strategy. Sabril was happily chewing on a bowl of salted pretzels, a snack common in human-frequented space and quite sufficiently intoxicated for her. Greetings, another being dropped down to sit next to her. It was a simple biped, hardly any limbs at all, and weirdly smooth, covered in tiny, slick scales with a long tail that drooped from the end of the barstool as it took a perch there. Brule recognized it as Fitchchak, an endothermic reptilian species that had a reputation for being fluttery, chattery things, who considered direct discussion of anything to be dreadfully rude, and would circle a point for hours. Brule gave the Fitchchak a nod, and it nodded back. Brule had no idea how you told the sex of a Fitchchak. Are you the owner of that light freighter getting refitted by Bay-12? asked the reptile. What if I am? said Brawl, pulling her eye stalks warily close. I only wanted to pass on a small bit of wisdom, gleaned from my species several centuries in space. There have been a number of incidents in space piracy in the news of late. Have you noticed? Brawl's eye stalks retracted slightly further. She gave the Fitchtack a long look. One of it? The Fitchtack? ruffled the frill around its neck and replied, One should be careful going out in space in such times. One should prepare to do a little research on such incidents, on their history, on their unusual results. I haven't done research since I had my adult malt, snapped Brawl. Nevertheless, it can provide valuable information, but if you don't wish to research, then perhaps I could help you by pointing out that piracy is almost unknown in this part of the galaxy. I'm quite aware of that, I have no fear of being attacked by a pirate. Brill tried not to flex her fangs too blatantly. She was going to be the one doing the attacking. And yet you go armed. Pirates do exist, indeed. I believe I mentioned that incidents of piracy have been on the rise. Interestingly, they have been rising ever since your species discovered FTL travel. Are you insinuating something? Brill tried not to bristle. Oh, no, no. Bishchik waved the taloned hand. That would be quite rude. I only wanted to do you a favor. A young, new species captain, such as yourself, should be warned before going out into the wider galaxy. Brill did bristle now, her joint foil standing on end. I know what I'm doing. I'm certain you do. Yet, you may not be aware of all relevant facts. For example, did you know that human ships carry almost a quarter of the cargo shipped about the galaxy? I knew that, yes. And yet... They charge a quite significant premium to do so. Have you ever considered why? The cost of all the ridiculous redundancies, I'm sure. It just means that I can undercut them and still make a profit, said Brule dismissively. Not that she intended to ship much legitimate cargo, but she at least pretend to. Indeed, indeed, still, the way other species are willing to pay this premium is a fact that you might ponder upon for a time. Brill let out a short hiss of annoyance. So do you have a point that you wanted to get to, Fitzchak? The Fitzchak snapped its brill up for a moment, the gesture startling as it seemed to make the alien's head twice the size it had been. 
then it smoothed it back down. No, I suppose I don't, it said, and slid down off the stool and stalked away. Rill looked after it, then ruffled up her joint spines and picked up another pretzel. That had been an odd encounter, but hadn't given her any actual useful information at all. Piracy on the rise. Of course it was. The Thurban were in space now, taking their rightful place. What need did she have to research that obvious fact? There it is. Rill's fangs were practically dripping with anticipation as she looked at the big screen on a ship's bridge. It didn't show an actual view, of course, since to the naked eye another ship wouldn't be visible until it was freakishly, insanely close. But the little icons scattered across the screen were a beautiful sight, all the same. Here, the system's primary, glowing white. There, a scatter of planets marked in green. Further out, the arc of a line indicating where the gravitational boundary between hyperspace and the star's gravity well lay. And just past that point, the little blue triangle marking a merchant ship, on a course so predictable that Brill's own ship would have no trouble at all matching vectors. That was necessary to board a ship, of course. But first, the fun part. The part where they pounced on the prey and put a nice big hole in something vital, but not too vital, just to make sure that it didn't escape. Captain, the merchant ship is changing vectors, spoke up a bit. One of Brill's actual brood sisters. Also, its power readings have just spiked. Trying to run away, I suppose. Does it have the power to outrun us? Uh, it is a very large ship, Captain. We're much faster. But it's not running. It's slowing down to meet us. What? Brill felt her joint fur standing on end in shock. Are you sure that it is a merchant? Sure as I can be. The engine readings aren't military grade. Everything is consistent with a Karunga-class human cargo transport. Brill rubbed her claws together, tried to think. What the hell do the humans think they're doing? A ship pops out of hyper right in front of Vector, and they starts after them. They have to know that we're pirates. Or can they be that stupid? Have they hailed us? No, Captain. Hail them, and uh, put it up on screen. The creature, whose image replaced the navigational display a moment later, was a soft-looking thing, wearing clothing to cover up its pale, squishy skin, with a tuft of dark hair at the top of it. A human, of course. The human, Brill thought, that the lack of facial hair, tufts meant that it was female, sprawled sideways on a chair, putting one leg over the arm of it, and gave Brill the tooth-bearing expression. Why, hello there, she drawled. I am Captain Amanda Price, from the Terran merchant ship Nobody's Business. What can I do for you? Brill bristled at the ridiculous human and her ridiculously long name and a ridiculously sentimentality in naming her ship. That was a ridiculous name, too. You can kill all power and prepare to be boarded. Oh, so you really are pirates, then? Uh, turbans, right? Uh, I heard about you. If you have, then you should know the danger that you're in. The ship is well armed. If you surrender, we will allow you and your crew to live. See, uh... The problem with that is that my ship is armed, too. Brill snorted in amusement at that very thought. The triple redundant super-defensive humans carrying weapons like a predator. Ha! No doubt they had very good shields, but Brill had paid for the best grazers and the highest yield torpedoes that the ship's tube system could fit. There was no way that... Sullivan, why don't you give the nice spider ladies there a little demonstration? I, I know it'll cut into our margins, but, but I think we can afford it. Yes, ma'am. 
said one of the other humans seated behind the one in the center of the screen. He did something on his console, and a moment later Brill heard a bit suck in a shocked breath. Missile launch, Captain. What? Brill felt a cold chill run through her vitals. They were still far, far outside effective torpedo range, let alone energy weapons range, so there was no way that she could fire back. She could try to shoot it down with a torpedo, or one of the grazers once it got close enough, but if it were an actual military-quality missile, it would be able to take evasive maneuvers, so there was no guarantee that she would get it. But what kind of lunatic merchant ship carried actual combat missiles? Their grab drives meant that they would cost a small fortune each, and that was just the beginning of the absurdity of arming a merchant ship with such a weapon. The space a missile launcher would take up would cut into their cargo capacity, and the magazine storage for the massive things, if you wanted to be able to fire more than once, would take up even more. Surely, there had to be some kind of fake. Brill's eyes snapped back to the human, still lounging idly in a chair. This is your warning shot, Derbian. It's the only one you'll get, so I suggest you pay attention. Comes off, Brill snapped at a bit, not wanting to see that smug, squishy creature any longer. Ebbets entered a command into a console, and the lounging human vanished, replaced by a navigational display that now showed the blinking orange dot moving inexorably from the human ship towards the Thurban ship. Brill's mind race. Space was a huge place, and even when ships were close to each other, as now, there were still actual vast distances apart. Missiles moved at sublight speeds, so even though they were blazingly fast in those terms, their run times were measured in minutes, not seconds. Still, there was limited time to act, and Brill would have to make the most of it. Drig! She snapped at the weapons expert. Track that, get a torpedo locked on it, and ready to launch as soon as it comes into range. Yes, Captain, she replied. Should I uh, ready a, a retreat course? Piped up Tissel, the navigator. No! Brill felt the whole joint for bristling in annoyance. There has to be a fake. And even if it's real, they can't possibly carry more than one. That's a cargo ship, not a warship. This is all just a bluff. I've seen humans. I've been on one of their worlds. They're soft creatures. They're prey creatures. They're just acting like a Tarquil, puffing up their spines so that they seem too large to tackle. Roll flexed her fangs again, coldly, eagerly, and said, I like the taste of Tarquil. There was silence after that as they waited while the orange dot of the missile crept closer and closer. Suddenly, Drig's claws grabbed down and the right moment arrived, and the green dot raced out from their ship towards the human missile. Torpedoes were smaller things, and were given all their impetus by the torpedo tube that launched them. They had no drives of their own, and so they couldn't change course once sent on their way. This one shrieked out, and the missile shrieked in to meet it, but at the last second the missile swept, adjusting its course slightly, and then again it retargeted the ship, so the torpedo missed it entirely. The whole exchange had taken long enough that the missile was almost in energy weapons range now. Brill wanted to curse. She should have had Drug fire several torpedoes, in case the first one missed. Prepare the grazers, it's almost in... She was cut off by an orange light vanishing from the display. The missile had exploded itself just outside of energy range. An alarm buzzed as the shield suddenly registered dangerously elevated amounts of energy. The missile had been nuclear.
and from the hellish heart of its blast came radiation that sleeted now against the Thurbian's shields. But the shields were more than sufficient against it, and Brill let out a long breath of relief. Sister, the abbots, the human is hating us again. But the thing back on screen... The bit stabbed at a console, and once again the squishy creature lounging on a chair appeared. Hello there, Thurbian. Ah, that was your one and only warning shot. You can heave too, or you can run away. I don't really care which. But if you continue on the spectre, I will shoot to kill next time. I will not be taken by your bluff, human. No cargo ship could afford more than one missile. I wasn't hatched yesterday. The human finally straightened in a chair. It was no bluff, I promise you. You'll save yourselves a lot of trouble if you just break off now. Ha <laughs> that's what you want me to think. But I know better, human. You are not raiders yourselves. You are mere cargo haulers, not even producers of things. You are the lowest form of prey. I will not be bluffed by prey. Come off, she added, turning to her bits, who once again obediently switched the screen back to normal display. We maintain our course then, Captain, asked Tissle, her voice nervous. We do, said Brill firmly. Nearly a minute ticked by, and Brill felt her eye stalks extend in renewed confidence. She hadn't even realized how far she pulled them in. But the humans obviously didn't have any more. Missile launch, said Abitz, her voice tight with sudden fear. Just one, said Brill, mentally counting the torpedoes they had on board and considering the best strategy to catch the damn thing this time. Just one. Uh, uh, no, no, wait. Another launch. They have to be fake, hissed Brill. They have to be. And a third, said Abitz. What should I do, Captain? asked Tissel. Nothing, snarled Brawl. She knew perfectly well that the missiles, if they really were missiles, would be locked onto a ship. There was no time to slew far enough to the side to get out of range, so there was no avoiding them entirely. Their shields had held against the radiation from the blast still kilometers away, but would crack like the thinnest of eggs from a direct impact. It wasn't military grade at all. It was meant to protect against micrometeors and radiation hazards. The only thing to do was hope that they could pick at least a few of the missiles off with the torpedoes. Drug, come up with a firing plan to shoot the whole torpedo magazine at them. They can only do so much dodging. If we hit enough of them, we can take them out, or slow them enough for the grazers to get a good shot. Go ahead and fire early. We don't need an ideal targeting, we just need more chances to hit them. Yes, Captain. It would be tight. They'd only brought a dozen torpedoes, so they'd just four shots at each missile, and they'd have to take all four as fast as possible to even have a chance, so that they could all miss completely, unless the missile dodged one and swerved into another. Still, they might get lucky with those, or with the grazers at closer range. Another launch, said Abitz, and her voice was heavy with dread. Pachak, bro, couldn't keep from swearing. How many of those things can they have in the ship that size? If the cargo hold is entirely missiles... More than a thousand, whispered Tissel. Her eye stalks were pulled all the way in, and her arms were curled in as well, hunched in a posture of terror. Brill hissed and raged. They cannot have a hold, fool. They're a merchant ship. They make money hauling cargo. We will bring down the missiles targeted at us, and then we will bring them down like the prey they are. Keep our course. Yes, Captain, said Tissel. But Brill feared that it was much as because she knew fleeing wouldn't save them as for any other reason. Brill wanted to be certain that they'd made it. That this was all a bluff, a ruse, that the missiles were a fake. 
that the torpedoes would take them out. She wanted, needed to believe anything but that her own death was staring at her in a form of one blinking blue triangle and four orange dots creeping towards her. The torpedoes began firing, a volley of three aimed at the first missile. Another launch, a spit of bits, and a fourth orange light blinked into existence next to the blue triangle of the human ship. Brill felt her own eye stalks retracting completely. They had to be fake. They had to be fake. They all had to be fake. The fourth torpedo blinked off the display. The second did as well. The third vanished too, and the missile's orange glare vanished with it. Brill almost dared to hope for an instant that it was indeed fake. Then the shield alarm squealed again, and the remnants of nuclear foul fire splashed against them. It had been real, and the least four more like it were headed their way. Captain Amanda Price stared at the main display and shook her head. There was a scatter of white pinpricks indicating the recent debris field, and another scatter of little green dots. Light pods, and Terran made ones too, it looked like. Across the spot where the turbine ship had been, it had taken six missiles to take them down, a good chunk of a twenty-shot magazine, though at least she hadn't needed to spend any counter-missiles. The turbines hadn't got anywhere near her ship and they obviously used every torpedo they had trying to shoot down her missiles in any case. But the last few had only been opposed by energy weapons. These new guys aren't very bright, are they? Said Dan Sullivan, the weapons officer, who sounded half amused, half incredulous. Girls, said Price, almost absently. Any thurban you talk to will be female. Their males aren't sentient. Huh. Okay then, well, uh, girls or guys, that was pretty dense of them. That's been how most of the reports I've seen on Terran's shipping encounters with them have gone, said Price with a shrug. So no, at this point they're really not. They have to know by now that their pirates nearly always lose. They've managed to have some better armed ships and to get lucky a few times, but mostly, Price gestured to the screen, mostly that happens. How many do you think got off before it blew at the end there? Not many, probably, Price replied. Jackson, she turned to another member of the crew, the navigator. Parts are planned to pick up all the pods are the same. I wouldn't leave even pirates out here. Well, you do that. I'll start writing up an incident report for that spit and polish types back on Earth. She flashed a grin at that. Gotta get our anti-piracy power from the Navy, so I can afford to restock the missiles. It'll be nice to get some really up-to-date ones. Hell, maybe if Earth gets enough reports about these bozos... They'll do something to actually drive the point home to the whole species, said Sullivan. Maybe so. I'm considering just releasing any we find in the pods to make their way home. Normally, I'm all for prosecuting pirates, but I feel that they might be better served telling everybody else from their backboards little planet to stop it already. Captain Price shook her head again. Although, given their specific form of idiocy, maybe they'll just try ramping it up. Well... The Navy will definitely teach them what not to do if they try that, said Sullivan with a chuckle. True enough. Now let's get a move on, people. We've got lots to do, and when that's all done, we still have to finish our route, she grinned. After all, a human ship always delivers its cargo, no matter what. End of story. I would just quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and patrons. Caspar Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Barky, It's Difficult to Pronounce, Lord Azrakul, and Arcadian. 